I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have Fred in Alaska joining us today. Fred, how you doing? I'm doing well. So you and I, you and I talked quite a bit yesterday. You have some really, really interesting things you've experienced. So I'm going to basically metaphorically hand the microphone to you and and tell us, you know, about these things. And I guess you know, as we just discussed, um, kind of start at the beginning and you know, take us down the the road of all these things that have occurred. Okay. Um, just to keep it simple, I'll, I'll stick with the, a few and uh, tell you about the last intense experience. Um, being little as a kid, uh, fish camp for us younger ones, we couldn't go to yet because it was across the bay and it it was just too much for the adults to watch all the, all us young cousins. We grew up subsistence. So they would, you know, either go across the bay for set netting or for just subsisting to put away fish or whatever. So, uh, one of my aunts would usually stay behind, watch all of us kids. There'd be anywhere between nine and 13 of us. Cause you know, those were a large family. Well, we would be out front of my grandma's house. Um, at the time it was right towards the end of the runway of the Dillingham airport towards the Squaw Creek side. And we had some neighbors down the hill that were relatives, but, uh, everyone communicated mainly by VHF radio. And so, uh, every once in a while, not every day, but when uh, one would be spotted, there'd VHF radio to all the surrounding neighbors and whoever was listening, hey, there's, you know, hairy man in the area, watch your kids. So we'd all be called in and basically sit in a, a big circle in the middle of the room, nowhere near the windows. And my little aunt Lucy, she's since passed, but she would, I don't remember what rifle it was. I think it was one of my grandpa's hunting rifles, but she would stand guard inside the house peeking outside every once in a while um we had the blackout curtains uh for summertime to be able to sleep but you know looking back their dual purpose to keep them from looking in at us kids and just uh, there was various things little like in um 83 1983 we were coming back down the Nushigak river from hunting camp because we would take the uh, 32 foot fishing boat up and do the hunting, use the skiff, use the uh, main fishing boat as kind of like our camp. <clears throat> and we would use the skiff as our little get around, go up to Henry Slough or wherever we're hunting moose and whatnot. But we're on our way back from the hunting trip and we had the stern was tarped off with uh, two by four material, kind of a frame and then tarp draped over for our meat hanging on a rack down going down the center of the uh, stern of the boat these are 32 foot fishing boats <clears throat> as we uh 
we're coming back down towards the mouth of the Nushagak, we got to an area called Black Bluff and Angel Bay. And that's a tidal area. So I don't know if anyone who isn't familiar with that, when the tides come in, it makes the fresh water back up and kind of raise its height and whatnot because of the, the flow of the tide. Well, we happen to get uh, stuck on a sandbar. And so they were kind of concerned at first about the tide going out and us maybe tipping. So there's discussions of that going on. And one of my older cousins asked if he could take us younger. There was about six of us or so in the skiff to go sport fishing. So they were like, yeah, yeah, you know, go ahead, get the kids out of here type of thing. And no sooner than we were on the skiff and untied, we were uh, backing away from the boat we all of a sudden all the adults on the boat started yelling and screaming again, getting our attention. And we noticed rocks were splashing in the water up on the bluff. There was a hairy man screaming. This is, this bluff's about 65, 70 feet tall. Uh, it, it realistically it, as a kid, it looked kind of far away, but in real life it really wasn't. And so we get back, we scramble on board and us kids at first, we're just kind of, Oh, it's screaming, oh, you know, Harry man, whatever. We we didn't know what to make of it. You know, we were we were too young to really grasp what was going on. <laughs> At one point, my uncle um, asked my cousin for his 44, and like I was telling you yesterday, it was one of them old Ruger Red Hawks with like a 13-inch barrel and a four-by scope on it. One of those, I mean, great gun, but it, you know, anyway. So he asked for that, and everyone else had their 270s and odd sixes and everything. And uh, they had them at the ready, and we were inside the cabin, kind of looking out the window, you know. And this thing was up there screaming, and we could see its silhouette because it was starting to get dusk. So it wasn't a very clear view, but it was loud. It's, I mean, the screaming was—you could hear it clearly inside the boat. <laughs> well, this thing started chucking rocks directly at us. Instead of near us, the rock started coming at us. One came through the tarp, uh, hit where one of the um, quarters of the moose was hanging, knocked it off the rack. Once it got to that level, um, shots opened up. Boom, 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 boom. There was a volley of shots, and we're, when we were looking out the window, we watched the thing drop. It jumped back up. Rocks kept getting thrown. Another volley of shots. And we didn't see it anymore. They made us get down below even further where the sleeping area is. Because you step down into the cab. There's the wheelhouse there, you know, and a little dining area because you had an American commercial fishing boat. And then it steps down a little more down into the V-hole. And there's bunks on either side of that V-hole on the inside. And so all us kids were down in there. And I don't, the time frame, I couldn't tell you, but... um Every once in a while, you would hear a volley of shots and muffled talk and everything. That was in 1983. All his kids ended up falling asleep, woke up at the harbor. You know, not much was really said outside of amongst each other as far as the adults. Anyway, carrying on. Uh, back in 2006, at the end of the fishing season, my uncle wanted to do some gold panning way up the Nushagak River towards Iliamna. And uh, 
it was just me, him, and his son. So family members of mine. We got all the gold panning stuff together. We, I mean, we loaded down the skiff. We had a 40-horse outboard with a, a jet drive for the shallow water we anticipated running into, and we had a 40-horse Yamaha outboard with a prop drive. So, we, you know, we could better navigate the potential areas we wanted to go because there's lagoons up there and, you know, things of that nature. And let's see, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Alaska or the Nushigak River drainage. Um, it goes from Dillingham, Ekwok, Nustuyahawk, and Kaliganik are the main villages along there going north. <clears throat> anyway, we it took a few days to make it to where we were going because my uncle was in his late 60s at the time. And so... Once we got to New Stuyahawk, we had friends and family there. We were there for a couple of days for him to kind of recover being on the river because yeah, it gets cold. I don't know if you guys have ever traveled in the water or anything like that, but it, it gets nippy on the river no matter what the ambient temperature is. But uh, so we stayed there a couple of days and then we went on up, stopped in Kaliganik, got some more fuel. Um, got some advice because there's large rocks at the mouth of the Nuyakuk River where we were going, just south of Harris Creek. And so my uncle got the advice on the channel and, you know, how to properly get through there without tearing out your lower unit. <laughs> we get up to this fishing game salmon weir counting station. It's where they lay out this thing on the bottom of the river and they count salmon as they come up and through. Well, we get up there, we're unloading everything, and uh, some of our friends in New Studiohawk was telling us about a very large black bear that was supposed to be in the area up up that way. So I wanted a new rug. You know, I was excited. You know, I got the rifle, I got everything good to go on that. And uh, I tried to talk my cousin into taking me back down the New York a little ways to go check out, you know, see if we could find some black bear action. I really wanted that rug. We got everything unloaded we because of the time of day we decided to stay stay put we'll do it tomorrow you know not let excitement get the better of us or whatever and uh we got everything unloaded into this little shack now this little shack is like a eight foot square uh two by four framing five eighths plywood and it had like a little 50 style egg looking um little toe behind camper deal jettison off the back of it but attached to that little shanty lean-to shack whatever you want to call it for the bunk area so in this little egg-shaped thing there's two bunks on one side two bunks on the other and the little window in the back was all boarded up so it was dark in there and just bunks is you know it was basically for the fishing game uh observers or whatever when they were there <laughs> and as you uh come up to it because it's on the high bank and uh there's a small little bit of a gravel bar there uh or beach i should say but it's real steep it's not very big just enough room for you to you know beach your skiff a little bit and a little trail that goes up the high bank and you can go to a little path to the shack it's it's all right visible from the the river's edge <laughs> excuse me so uh, one of the things, though, is there's no tie-offs. And so the anchor and the bow line, we drug up over the top of the bank and stuck it into some of the uh, tundra 
up back away from the riverbank just to keep the boat from pulling away or whatever when we're in the shack. So we get everything unloaded. We're in there. Uh, my cousin and uncle are playing cribbage, I believe it was. And I was messing. I had a brand new, I had just bought this 870 pump action shotgun with the rifled barrel. You know, I had the ghost ring combat sights on it. I was stoked. <laughs> I was adjusting the rear sight. Uh, I don't know exactly how much time it transpired between us unloading and then playing cards, but it had been a few and it was starting to get dark, but not totally dark yet. So <laughs> while I was sitting there just in the site, uh, I happened to look over towards my, uh, before I looked over towards my cousin, I heard the whole place felt like it shifted. Like, uh, you hear something kind of creak, you know, uh, but there was no wind to push the, the movement. It was at least, you know, enough movement to make the whole place creak. Me and my cousin heard it, but my uncle is deaf as a stump. Um, I don't know if it was years around the diesel motor or something genetic. I don't know, but he, he was deaf as a stump, even with hearing aids. But I digress. We're, so me and LB look at each other. He gives me a weird look, and as I'm looking at him, I noticed something dark outside the window move out of view of the window. And uh, I'm getting the chills thinking about it. Uh, just give me a second here. Uh, ever since talking to you about it yesterday briefly as well, just every time I think about it, my I can feel my blood pressure go up. But Yeah, no problem. Take your so, time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, he saw the expression on my face and jumps up sitting there I said there was something outside the the window there and he thought I was just joking around initially but there was something in the air to where he stopped taking it lightly uh he jumps up he grabs the 30 out six we're thinking bear you know okay it's just curious bear it's gonna circle around it's gonna do whatever and uh Give me a second here. Add a weird sound downstairs. Anyway, so we get ourselves together. We're going to check out this bear, run it off, whatever it may be. Um, we kind of try to peek out the windows to see if we could see it. Can't make out. Heard some weird noises, but couldn't really pin it down. You know, what kind of bear, where'd it go, that type of thing. Well, we had one of those... Uh, million candle watt power type uh spotlights you know there you put the big i think there's six volt batteries in or something like that they're basically worthless but at the time it's what everyone used but anyway so we got that prepped and ready to go popped open the door um i hit the spotlight to kind of scan around and we saw three sets of red amber eyes off in the distance by the tree line. Um, at that distance, I couldn't tell overall height, but it reminded me of signpost reflectors. So I asked my cousin, I was like, is there, you know, is there any signpost, you know, markers or anything? There wasn't. Got a creepy feeling. We, we shut the door. We were talking 
he backed away from where I was standing by the door because all there is, it, this is a plywood door with two by four little framing on it, like a little little J-hook latch type deal to keep the damn thing shut. Nothing. I mean, this is a little matchbox. No real safety whatsoever. He backs up. He's sitting down. He has a 30-odd six in his hand, and all of a sudden, wait, he didn't sit down. I apologize. I was thinking of when he was getting ready to start to play the card game. He was standing by me, and it was like he shot under the, the card table they were just playing at back into the corner. Like he shot under there. I thought something like it looked like he was shot. I mean, you know, when you've seen a movie, someone gets shot and they fly back, you know, even though that's unrealistic, but that's how it looked. Boom. He was right under that table and he was clutching the 30 odd six by the barrel, had it kind of backwards. Like it was a paddle and he was like locked up. So I'm asking what's going on. And he's looking at the opposite window. <sighs> I get the chills thinking about it. And uh, me and my uncle turn and look. And in the reflection of the little Coleman lantern, we saw these huge red amber eyes. Grant you, I still have the shotgun in my hand. As soon as it closed its eyes, it like blinked and then started moving away from the window towards the corner of the shack. I shot three times right through the wall. Boom, boom, boom. What was weird about shooting was there was so much pressure. Um, normally in an enclosed area, you shoot off a 12 gauge shotgun, ears are ringing, uh, you know, all that, but it was, it, it all seemed muffled. Um, kind of like you had on earmuffs the whole time. It was real weird. So I make the shots, there was a scream and then the whole place shifted two feet, like instantly. <sighs> I thought they were going to push us into the river because the river's just adjacent to us. And so there, it was, it was chaotic for a few minutes. My uncle basically shut down. Um, he went, he sat on the bunks out of sight of the windows and stuff and just sat there. Um, didn't really respond. Now that Elby would not get up off the floor. Uh, and I'm, I'm panicking. I'm trying to, I was trying to initially wrestle the, the 30 odd six from him, but this thing was loaded the way he was holding it. I, I didn't want it to accidentally go off in his freak out mode and everything like that. Um, so essentially what ends up happening is I end up with my back in the chair up against where the little entrance into the little sleeping area is holding this shotgun and pumping the lamp every once in a while. But during that time, uh, it was, it was very uh, like deathly quiet. Um, uh, like I was telling you yesterday, I don't know exactly how much time had passed, but it, it was hard for me to even um, pump the little little pump thing on the lantern to keep the lamp lit, but I didn't want it to go out either. So it, it was like a, every micro movement was one of terror. Like, uh, I don't want to let my hand off this gun kind of feeling. So anyway, that goes on for a while. 
And after uh, some quiet for a while, my cousin Albie actually starts communicating again. And I said, hey, what did you see? What is going on? What did you see? You need to snap out of it. I need help. I'm, you know, I'm essentially there alone at this point because no, no one else is registering what's going on. No one else is acknowledging it. It's just the weirdest thing. And, you know, I love these people. Like, I've known them my whole life. I love them. You know, and it was just, it was it was really hard for me to see them like that. Like, because these are Bristol Bay boys, you know, they're hardy fishermen, you know, hunters all their life to be in that state was just, it was really hard few moments there. Well, he told me and he could only, you know, I asked him to explain what he saw. I said, we saw glowing eyes and then they moved, you know, with the large shadow. He said, it showed me its teeth. I'm getting the chills thinking about it because the look on his face. Now, this is a native guy. Uh, it was just at the end of summer, dark, dark tan. You know, I, I get dark tan as well. But he was pale white. And he told me that the teeth were very large, block teeth uh, with canines, but not like a dog's. Uh, not as pronounced, but definitely more pronounced than anything he's seen. And all he could convey was large, large teeth. And I said, you know, was there anything else? Was there more than one? Because, granted, we just saw eyes shine from three. I mean, not too long before all this transpired. Now, the... Like we were talking yesterday, you know how you pick up on just maybe not the whole scene of what you're seeing, but little things will just kind of jump out at you. Well, for him, it was the teeth. He couldn't explain anything else but the teeth. So at this point, there's a, there's been a lull, uh, quiet for quite a while. Um, I tell him, you know, we need to get out of here. We need, we need to get a game plan. We need to be ready. We, we just, we need to get to the skiff. We need to go there. You know, at this point, there was no gold panning. There was no, I'm, well, you know, we'll make a stand. None of that was in my mind. It, it was all get the hell out. Um, all those feelings of, you know, I'm, I'm here by myself, you know, are they going to do something to help the situation? Yeah. I mean, all sorts of things, you know, going through my mind. And, uh, after some time had passed, like I was telling you yesterday, um, at twilight is the word you use, but you know, where it goes from pitch black to a little bit of light, like just a slight change in the blackness, I guess, uh, something along those lines. Well, um, I wanted to go then we were going to, he wanted to, let's make sure nothing is outside. Let's take a, let's take a look. Well, we spotlight out the one side, the riverside, there's nothing, uh, nothing that stood out. Went to the opposite side, which is the inland side from the river spotlight. And like I was telling you yesterday, there was that, they had a, a outhouse. It was about eight foot tall because it was like, they didn't, they did it with minimized cuts to the wood. You know, it was like a three foot, maybe four foot wide, six foot long, just a, a little 
basically a lean-to with the toilet hole cut in it on the inside with the one-sided roof. As I spotlight over there, this thing behind it was taller than it, but like we are talking yesterday, it was like uh, pitch black, almost like it absorbed the light. It was so black. Um, it, it was cartoon big. You, you couldn't make out definitive features, but you could see the the silhouette of it was just hulking, um, cartoon big. And uh, it started moving out from behind it. And so spotlights killed. Uh, we all tucked back immediately into that little sleeper area, which, uh, I mean, this place was no, it wasn't a good hiding place. Um, nothing about it was heavy duty. It was all just slapped together type of deal. So we get to a point to where I'm on one bunk uh, facing the opposing window. I could see through the opening into the bunk area, and he's got the other one covered, and we kind of got barrels crossed here. We, we weren't in our right minds. Otherwise, we would have had a better method, but that's what we were doing. Um, to say freaked out is an understatement. I, I could even talking about it now, I could feel the blood pressure in my eyes, just the boom, boom, boom. And the, the hair hasn't stopped standing on my arms, but so, uh, a multitude of things are going through my mind. I'm trying to come up with a game plan of getting out and it's obvious they're still out there. We hadn't heard anything. We just saw that very large thing move and, you know, everything kind of shut down. Everything got quiet. We were aiming the guns. We we're kind of whispering to each other, trying to get this game plan going. The slightest tinge of light started showing. So I said, it's going to, it's going to get serious real soon. We need to be ready to go. Um, we were, we were discussing something, um, the outboard or something. And I was telling them, you know, you go first. I, I can't carry both of you. I need you to be, I need you to be part of this. I, I can't have you running out the door and shutting down because there's no way I could try to defend us. You guide your dad. And, you know, uh, there's just no way I could do it all. And he reassured me and stuff, you know, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. And I said, and then it dawned on me that bow line, we drugged that thing. I mean, it was like 50, 70 foot bow line rope. We had drugged this anchor and dug it into the tundra. So now I'm thinking, man, we're, we're tied off. And I was like, we're going to cut that rope. And I handed him my pocket knife. I said, when you get down there, you got to cut the rope before you start the outboard. Just cut that rope. We don't want anything holding us up. So once I get down last, I could push us off. We go. Had it, you know, kind of setting up a game plan, you know, you'll go out. I'll be right behind you. I'll make sure there's, you know, nothing waiting down on the little landing there by the skiff hiding out of sight. That's going to try to get you. We'll, you know, we'll cover each other's backs as we move kind of thing, you know? So some time had passed and we're sitting there talking and it sounded like a, like a helicopter off in the distance. Just doof, 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 doof. You know how you hear the rotor wash at a distance on a helicopter. Well, it it was going on for a few moments, boop, 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 
and then we felt it in the in the ground. It was one of these things that it just bolted by the window. And then all of a sudden, all we heard was a bunch of it running around the shack and just, you know, blurs in front of the windows and stuff. When, when we happened to be looking out, you'd see them just fast, heavy footed. Um, you could tell some were larger than the others just by the impact of the feet. So this is not long before we're we're going to make our escape. So it, it really heightens the, the whole, the whole thing is just, uh, at that point, I wasn't sure we were going to make it out of there. Like in, in inside me, I didn't say it out loud, but inside me, it felt like, oh man, this is, you know, this is going to be, you know, I guess it'll be what it'll be, but I'm not, I'm going with my boots on. I'm going to shoot one of these, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not just going to step out and say, okay, here I am. You got me. You know, I wasn't going out like that. So the running stops, um, it went on for five ten minutes and it was intense and then not intense and then not it was like almost like they would get in a line run around together and then back off then small little rocks started hitting it sounded like someone shooting a bb gun at at the the shack and we kind of look at each other like, what the hell is that? They were they were throwing little rocks. And uh, something you pointed out yesterday, you know, they I think they're trying to get a head count. And, I, you know, I think you're right because, you know, of course, we all start, you know, trying to peek out the window, see what the hell is going on. And what got me is with all these little rocks being thrown, not one of the windows was broken. I, I don't know why, but it, it, you know, it just... I don't know, something that just one of those little things that stands out in your mind when stuff like that happens or whatever. But so that calms down. No more rocks. It's light enough where we can kind of, you know, see off in the distance. Um, we spotlight around. The spotlight was pointless anyway because I could see perfectly fine without it. Um, we get our game plan. I got him right in front of me at the door. Now, um, initially when, uh, I told you yesterday, he was trying to straighten that nail with the rock to nail the door shut. I, that really stands out in my mind because it was so ridiculous of a thought, but it just kind of goes to show where his mind was at with the terror, like this little, you know, 16 penny nail is going to hold back something like these things. But anyway, that for some reason, since we talked yesterday, just keeps popping up in my head but uh, so we kind of get stacked up you know ask my uncle you got every anything that you want to take with you any valuables you know your wallet you know stuff important stuff because everything else i ain't taking the time to load the skiff yeah it, it just ain't happening you know we had a brand new uh coleman little propane stove uh various bags of clothes of hunting gear you know um the only thing we had with us on our persons was the firearms and my uncle wasn't carrying his shotgun. He had the old school, uh, Remington game master, pump master or something old school shotgun, um, big old long 32 inch barrel or something crazy. Like the, just a big monstrosity of a 12 gauge had that loaded up, but I had that slung over my shoulder. And at this point I had the 30 odd six, uh, my cousin, I handed him my 870 pump and uh 
had that made sure that thing was loaded up with like those uh one ounce slugs those foster slugs or whatever wanted to have as you know as much of a a chance to defend ourselves as possible even though uh from the first shots I made and whatever hit the the structure and moved it a couple feet I I felt like we didn't have enough gun um I held on to the gun I wasn't going to let go of it but it, in inside of me it felt like this is not enough and especially when that large one moved like it was so black um just like nothingness like it absorbed light it was the strangest uh thing like it that was it seemed more scary to me than its size was the fact that it was absorbing light it appeared to be anyway because it there was no uh it's hard to explain like imagine having a bright flashlight and beaming it into a very dark corner that's pitch black and none of the light registering. You know what I mean? It, it was on that level. So we get our game plan. We're stacked up. Um, it's it's light enough to see. Send him out. I'm right behind him. My uncle is old. He's not spry, but he's not feeble. He, you know, he kind of walks with a shimmy, you know. <clears throat> so I'm going to keep him safe while LB goes ahead, supposed to cut the bow line, get the boat, you know, the kicker going and all that stuff. And I kind of go out with him and my uncle's trailing behind me. And I want to make sure that if something does try to get him on his way to the skiff, I can, you know, protect him from the high side of the bank as he's going down to the river's edge. And this isn't far. This is like 20 feet to where it drops down on the little 12 foot trail to the little beach landing. It is not far seemed like 10 miles at the time um we're going along he gets to the top of it i say go down i'll keep an eye i kind of sidestep a little bit more towards the bank to kind of look down because it's a cut bank there uh where erosion happens and stuff horrible place for a cabin but that's just where they had it for the counting tower or whatever so uh he's going down it there's no sign of anything there I start having my uncle, I said, come on, you know, I had him come from behind me. He, he had a bag, um, little, little backpack of some kind, day bag, whatever. And he starts down, uh, this little, you know, it was only about 12 foot down to the, to the landing there. And he starts shimmying down it cause it's pretty steep. Um, as I lean down and I'm talking to, uh, my uncle to go, I, I kind of step back a little bit, and as I'm turning my head back towards the tree line, whew, this rock, bigger than a, I mean, bigger than a basketball, it appeared just whizzes right. I mean, it was so close to my head. You know, thinking back on it, it just, I have the hard goosebumps right now thinking about it. It was everything was regular motion in my mind until, whew, and then everything kind of went slow motion, and I saw the size of this. I, my head naturally followed the rock and it went and splashed in the river so hard it hit the river bottom before water could close over it. And it was about two, three feet deep where the rock impacted the river. Everything's instantly slow motion again. And I turn my head in the direction that the rock came and that big black shadow comes out of the tree line again. And like I was telling you yesterday, it was like, those old monster movies, it didn't look like legs were moving. It just looked like it 
you know how they come through the fog and it, you could tell they're not stepping there's kind of gliding well it was it was like that without the fog it, it was just coming out of the trees and i let off three shots out of that 30 odd six it, it sounded like a semi-auto i never worked in action like that in my life put three shots on it not a flinch it wasn't moving forward anymore that I could tell, but at this point, it was scramble time. It, it was time to go. I get down there, and the bow line wasn't cut. So I'm yelling, you know, throw the knife as I'm literally, I, I shoved my uncle. I feel bad about it because he bruised his wrist pretty good, but I flung him into that skiff. Uh, he was kind of trying to sit down and swing his legs. I shoved him in there, like, we're going to go. We're not, no, no. This isn't that kind of trip. You know, I feel bad about it, but at the time, I didn't care. It, we were going. You're you're still in one piece. That's all that matters. Get in there. So I had to have him throw me my pocket knife back, and luckily it landed nearby. I, I cut. Um, he had at that, when he got into the skiff to start the kicker, he threw the 870 out off the bow onto the beach. I don't know if he was throwing it out there for his dad to have access to. I, I never got an answer to that, but he threw it. And so I'm cutting the bow line and I'm thinking I'm going to grab that really quick. But, uh, as I was holding onto the bow, my cousin was, uh, revving the engine too hard to shift the gear. I was yelling at him, you know, idle down so it'll shift. Because if it's too high of an idle, it won't shift in forward or reverse. So he, he let it idle down a little bit, and then it clunked into reverse. And then his eyes and my uncle, like where he repositioned himself in the skiff, fell back looking up behind me. And as I turn around and look, this large one was on the riverbank. And at this point, it wasn't just jet black anymore. Um, it was still black, but uh, it had real fine uh, reddish brown, kind of like a cinnamon red uh, tips to its hair. Like, you know, like we we're talking about before, those little things that just catch your eye. It was just like, um, I was so focused on this like shin area looking at this color difference that uh, it was like I was stuck mentally it was only a microsecond but in the mind's eye it was like what the you know pushed off kind of drug in the water a little bit got in the skiff and we got out of dodge we left that brand new my brand new shotgun it was like i bought it remote in the village it was like over 800 bucks for the damn thing um new stove whole bunch of gold panning equipment I, I mean probably a few thousand dollars worth of stuff you know if you consider the price of buying it in remote alaska and we got the hell out of Dodge. And that's where that one stopped. Hey, Fred, uh, I just got a quick question for you. So this one that is huge, and it's it's the light-absorbing creature. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you said this thing was like, what? 10, 11 foot tall or taller? No, taller than 12. I'm a carpenter. I'm good with, you know, uh, measurements and whatnot. This, it was initially when we saw it with the spotlight behind the outhouse, it was taller than I saw uh, upper part of what would be. Now, this is in silhouette because it's absorbing light. So I'm going by silhouette size. But 
the top of the um, outhouse would have been eh, probably uh, at least a foot and a half down its sternum. And then it had to have been every bit of five and a half foot wide. Um, and no, it, it was like, if you take the top of a sheet of plywood round off the corners and put a small bump in the middle, that's what it, its head seemed like. Um, it was a little bigger than that, but not, not much. There was virtually no neck. It was just this mass cartoon big. Um, I get, uh, obviously the biggest, baddest thing around, um, bar none. Uh, it was massive. And when it was above us and I was looking up at it, um, I couldn't focus on anything, but it's lower part of its leg. because in my mind, this thing was all pitch black. And then I'm seeing these, uh, orange red hair tips, you know, and it rem when I was younger, I had a rose hair tarantula and you, it looks all black, but then you put it under a black light and it has all these real fine white tips that will really glow under the black light. Kind of creepy. Well, it, for some reason my mind went to that when I was looking at this thing and jumped in the skiff and, you know, we we're out of there. What kind of, did you get a chance to look at the feet at all to see what, uh, could you see no, the from my vantage point, no, from my vantage point, uh, its feet were back away from the uh, river's edge. There's kind of like a erosion line of dirt and grass mm -hmm. that kind of hooks hooks down the bank a little bit. But no, I, I never once looked at its feet. I, this thing had just uh, thrown a rock at me, and I shot it. So I, uh, you know, it, it was go time. Yeah, yeah. And you left your you left your equipment and your 870 Wingmaster on the bank. Did you ever go back to see if you're to retrieve your stuff? Like no, months no, no, uh -uh. I, I haven't. No, no, no. Screw that gun. I, you know, I, yeah. It at, at that point in time, none of that stuff meant anything. None of it. Yeah. Wow. Make it have it. Go gold panning. It's all yours. Bye bye. Yeah. It, it was. Uh, my heart rate's up just thinking about it. not as bad as it was yesterday when I was initially talking to William, but it's still, um, it, it's good you know to talk it, about it. Yeah, it, it, it is to kind of process it and, and kind of get it off your shoulders. I, I want you to continue on. I'm just going to, I'm just going to comment. There's a, you know, there's kind of a legend. I think it, well, it's, it's it sounds like it's a factual legend, of, uh, and this is, it makes me think of it, your story. I don't know where your location was in, in relation to uh, Port Hadlock, Alaska. I'm sure you've probably heard of that story where the, the whole village just abandoned. Oh, up and left, like Port Chatham? Yeah, Port yeah, Chatham, yeah. Down, um, yeah, that's down by Resurrection Bay, um, south of Homer. <laughs> no, we were on the other side of the... Uh, Alaska Peninsula, I think they call it. Like, okay, if you're looking at a map of Alaska and you see Anchorage, south of Anchorage, you'll see Homer and Resurrection Bay. Port Chatham was down there. Me, where this all transpired was over in Bristol Bay, 
um, like you go towards uh, the arm that sticks out going towards like Dutch Harbor. Well, yeah, Bristol no, Bay I was, I was thinking little... more in terms of this being like a parallel, possible parallel oh, oh, I see what you're saying. You know, I don't know. Um, there's so much, you know, me and, me and Will touched briefly on this yesterday. There's like thousands of people up here a year that go missing. Um, thousands. And, and I was unaware of this up until a couple of years ago when I saw a show missing in Alaska or something. And at the beginning it goes through and there's 2000 something, something people missing every year, every year. There's not a large population up here. Like it, it, it I, I think there's a lot more going on remote than what outsiders know. Uh, there has to be, I mean, there's so many, missing people and suspicious deaths that they chalk up to alcoholism and drugs. And yeah, fair enough. That that kind of stuff happens. But a couple thousand? Like I Yeah, that's that's I, I don't know. That's an extraordinary that's a staggering statistic. I mean I can't believe that it's I didn't realize it was like that. I heard there was some missing people up there, but that it annually thousands a year. Yeah. Not just since statehood a year and it it's like I don't know. I I think there's something to that, you know. Just from what I've I've never like these people that um, speak about gifting and you know want to be friends and you know going to have all these inner. I I've never in my lifetime witnessed a friendly one. Yeah. Like all the aggression was always initiated by them. All all encounters were were basically initiated by them. Like. Okay, that's the last time I, in 06, this, what I just told you happened. The next year, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, nobody gets a good vibe. You know, the credible witnesses I've talked to, you know, the Will and I, and, and, you know, you never get a comfy feeling from these things. No, Um, like I've felt human evil. I've felt, so I've been around some pretty evil people. I've seen some pretty ugly stuff. I I didn't just live in the remote village my whole life. I, you know, I've lived down in the States, would come back every summer for fishing and fall hunting, go back down to where I was living in the U.S. or lower 48, I should say. But um, I'm not just some unsophisticated, you know, village idiot that thinks he saw something that was actually a bear. No, no. I, right. No, I no, no. And and you have a Lechnigic, you know. You have a background. You're you have some Native American uh heritage, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh okay. And so I'm assuming that there's probably um a history of understanding of knowing yeah, since childhood. <laughs> since right. since we're all little. And and what gets me is um the two relatives that I experienced this with won't talk about it. They shut down. Uh, they won't even acknowledge that trip. Oh, really? Your uncle that you pushed in and the other guy? Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, they're trauma. Yeah. I, I mean, I get it. I'm traumatized by it. I still, you know, it never stopped me from going anywhere out in the woods, but it, it just reiterated a lifelong knowing of it's not there to come into the campfire and sing with you. You know, you're not going to sing Kumbaya and and share a beer. It's not, it's not that kind of game. It's not that kind of, you you know, 
the, what it was described to me by a friend of mine was a premonition of evil, a premonition of danger before yeah. you see the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and there's places on that river that if, if you're skiffing along, like for me, I, uh, I my senses are, are keen. I, I spent a lifetime out, you know, in dangerous remote areas. So, you know, when you're around that a lot, you, you just deal with things differently. You, you go with your feeling, not necessarily what you're seeing. And there's parts of that river that are just dark. Um, it could be middle of the day, but there's just some dark presence there. It's It's hard to explain but it's just darkness it's a foreboding evil like and and there's nothing tangible to say oh it's definitely evil because of this or that it's just a feeling you get that's just you know just no no we don't want to go down this trail now we'll we'll pick berries over here some other time yeah it's along those lines you just get Mm -hmm. those getting the creeps just thinking about it what about, Will mentioned you said something about the Yukon, that there's some activity along the Yukon. What, what's the deal? Oh, with yeah, that? up at Ruby, um, that, that pressure, that presence, that, that evil um, is all over up there. Um, I was there for a, a mining company. I was building a couple bunkhouses back in 2018. While you're in camp, um, you always feel like you're being watched. And because of my past experiences, I, I know that I know there's, you know, a hairy man out there somewhere and it's, you know, it's watching me. And, uh, like anytime I would take the little Polaris Ranger after my work shift, working on these bunkhouses, I I would get away from camp a little bit, kind of try to go explore, but I never made it far because even with the camp rifle which was a 338 wind mag just for safety you know because we flew into a remote spot and then drove 50 plus more miles away more remote you you know what i mean we're out there Mm -hmm. and uh so just basically for safety but even with the 338 wind mag and that pressure that that presence uh it didn't feel like enough. I would make it down the road a little way thinking, ah, I'll just, you know, I'll try to make it all the way into Ruby and go to the little general store or whatever and, you know, get a six pack of Coke or something, you know, spend $12 and, you know, because <laughs> okay. the prices in remote Alaska are outrageous, but I never made it. I never made it maybe a half mile outside of camp before that overwhelming sense of dread and danger overtook me. And I'm not a sissy guy. I'm not mm-hmm. scared of the dark. But when I feel that that presence, that that feeling, I, no, I don't argue with it. I know that I know that I gotta go. I, and, yeah. You know, go back to where you know it's safe. There's people, and maybe you'll have a chance if it does attack that it'll get one of them first, and you can get some good shot placement on them or something. I don't know. Well, you, but, you talk about the 338. I jokingly have mentioned to friends of mine. I said, you know, what you do is you got to give these things a lot of TLC. TLC, yeah. Teflon, lead, copper, about a three thirty eight is the beginning caliber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean that's a stout round. I mean I've you know with the thirty odd six I've killed every large uh, huntable animal in Alaska: coastal brown bear, black bear, moose. I mean, it, never have I doubted its power until I put three shots on this thing and it didn't flinch. Um, yeah, that's and I'm, a, I'm, I'm not bragging. I, I grew up shooting. 
I'm a hell of a shot. Open sight, scopes, all that. I'm a hell of a shot. And this particular 30-06, everyone in the family used it for their first moose. You know, it was like, it was my uncle's, but it was like the family loaner rifle. It, iron sights, beautiful gun, shoots straight as an arrow. Just, you know, it, it was a familiar firearm. I know I wasn't missing. So you had some other encounters. Uh, yeah. The Now, um the the one I told you about at the uh Weir Counting Station, that was the last time I visibly seen one. Um, but the next year in oh seven we went up the Nushigak River, we were going to uh Nustuyahawk from Dillingham and we left a little bit late and it was me and two other of my cousins. Um we were we we're going up to do something. I, I I don't know if it was uh taking one of my cousins to moose hunt or I don't remember exactly why we were going. We were just going. We are um, also at the same time blowing off some steam, brought some beers, you know, we're going up river, fishing season's over, all that kind of happy hoo-ha. Well, we get to a point where we know it's going to be too dark, so there's an area, um, it's, it's got to be at least six miles, river miles south of uh, New Studiohawk where we were heading that we decided, you know, we, we'll bank here. Um, it was kind of a opening into a, a swampy part off the river and there's some little sloughs that cut back in this area and uh, it was open enough to where we felt anything encroaching on us bears and whatnot we'll have time to see it and we kind of uh, where we we ba- we banked the skiff we tied it off in the area we were camping there was some deadfall uh, beetle kill spruce so we had the chainsaw with us and when I say we had a bonfire, we made a big bonfire and this was before anything really happened. We had this huge bonfire going. And so we're sipping on some beers or whatever. And off in the distance heard this owl hoot and it sounded like a natural owl hoot, however far away. A little bit of time went by, not much back behind us. We heard another owl hoot that was loud and unnatural, like very loud. So us being from that area, we all picked up immediately like, well, that's not right. Then across the river, like directly across the river from where we were at, another one. Very, very loud. Uh, So unnaturally loud that like this is 75, 85 yards at this point across the river and another probably 50, uh, 50 to 80 feet, roughly, kind of hard to gauge when it's kind of dusk out before the tree line. So whatever made that loud hoot, it was loud enough we felt it. Like, um, I'm into competition stereo systems. I, I got an outrageous setup in my car with thousands of watts, and uh, I really like the, the low notes. And... uh some of the the tone coming from that hoot was so low, you couldn't hear it. You could feel it, you know, like infrasonic, subsonic, whatever. Just loud is basically what I'm saying. Very loud. And uh, not very much time went by. The original area in which we heard the first hoot that sounded natural hooted again closer 
very loud unnaturally then the one back up that was behind us a ways hooted again so much more closer and so much more louder i couldn't tell you exactly the distance but it, they were kind of closing in on us the let me, one let me stop that made the noise second. i'm gonna i'm yeah. gonna have you continue but for for people listening and this is just my opinion this is not owl behavior to do this no owls go no you may hear an owl hoot for its mate its mate might respond and then they you know but there's never been a you know you go to an area and all you hear is owl hooting you know what i mean especially from different places like on that level and i've heard enough owl hoots to know natural versus unnatural uh real life versus a, a loud very loud imitation <clears throat> was there anything else about that no no i just wanted to mention that that's uh will and i both experienced the uh owls are not what they seem they're not owls so yeah go ahead continue on yeah not every one of them that's for sure well so after the uh the second volley of hooting the one that was across the river hooted really loud again but then just we were kind of like on the bend of the river so and it being dusk we couldn't see but out of our view we heard something cross the river now this isn't a shallow river this is the mighty nushigak river but whatever it was we heard it splash boom 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 get through the water it, it crossed the river to our side so from just being creeped out everything went into hyper holy crap mode you know uh immediately we felt like we were being hunted like that's the best analogy i can explain it we, they were communicating with each other and closing in on us stoked the fire i mean this fire got so hot and so big um that the little pop-up tent we had set up one of the guidelines for it and part of the tent melted from the heat and it was a good you know 12 foot back from the fire uh, we got it rip roaring hot. Now we didn't see physically see any of these. So once we heard the splashing in the river, as soon as the splashing stopped, we heard another hoot from that same area where it exited the river, very loud. And simultaneously with that hoot hoot, there was like a kind of click popping sound along with it, like simultaneously very uh I, I i couldn't even reproduce it it was on like two different octaves at the same time it, it was very it was unique and kind of cool but so freaking creepy I, I can't even wrap my mind around it but so essentially what ends up happening is is we end up back to back uh i think my my cousin had his uh 10-shot box mag, uh, semi-automatic 30-odd-6. He was very proud of it. Excellent gun. Um, my other cousin, he had, I think it was, uh, what the hell was that thing? I think it was only a 243 or something like that because it was his caribou rifle. and You know, you know how guys are, oh, I'm the best shot with this. I'll drop anything with it, blah, blah. Anyway, he had that. And I had that same 30-odd-6 I had from the year before that was my uncle's. 
um, like I said, family gun just kind of, you know, oh, you need a high-powered rifle. There's one right there. You know, it was like the go-to workhorse. So we had those guns, and we were all kind of back-to-back, and um, we heard the three sound off with this quick popping sound now with each one of the owl hoots, like simultaneously. I uh, don't know what it was, just it, it – what was it? Was it the uh, – predator movie where there was a little click popping going on or one of those movies there was uh, like a low grumble with the click popping at the same time yeah, yeah it was yeah. like that but without the growl but the owl hoot if that makes sense uh very unnatural that's that's what stood out the most unnatural then we hear shuffling like literally damn near right behind us within 25 feet now this is open to the river's edge it's maybe some little scrub alders nothing big nothing over a foot tall on this part of the riverbank we heard shuffling and walking within where we should be able to see because where the trees were and the sound was coming from like the the edge of the tree line versus the riverbank it was a good 30 feet between the two and this sound was originating somewhere in this clearing very loud very heavy steps um but we saw nothing and that was, ugh. you know, what, what do you, where do you start shooting? You yeah. Know, and this that, is in the daytime? That was going on in my mind. This is in daylight? Yeah, so, uh, it was at dusk again and in the yeah. fall. Um, you know, uh, there's something about the fall. I've been thinking about it since I, I talked to William yesterday. Uh, something about the fall that just, it seems like, I think it may be just because everyone's out in the bay fishing and doing other stuff away from those areas during the summer. And then, you know, they all congregate back in the the fall and that's when a lot of encounters happen. But I, I don't know if there's a correlation with the fall time and the level of aggression going up. Cause like outside of when I was young and we were uh, hustled into the house, you know, midsummer during, you know, June, July for salmon or whatever when, certain things would happen uh it seemed like in the fall the aggression was above and beyond the normal aggression like it was never a happy moment but like the level of aggression just go through the roof in the fall so i i don't know if there's a correlation with that or not whether they're you know storing up food reserves or you know i I don't know if it's maybe they're close to their mating season and you know they're getting like bull moose and aggressive like that i I don't know it's all just kind of speculative in my mind no but that's you know that's something will and i've talked about well you've mentioned that a bunch that they really become active uh it's not just the, the time of day you know like at dusk you know when at first light or when when the sun's going down but in the fall, and I think he said also in the spring. Well, no, John gave- John Green first noted it in his books years ago. Um, spring is the lowest time of activity. Uh, then it goes <clears throat> begins to increase. Summer and fall is the most active, and then winter and spring are the lowest. Okay. Yeah, which makes sense because in the fall we would you know have a lot of sightings too. Uh, in my younger years, when we'd be out berry picking you know, up on the sloping hills and the sides of the mountains and stuff, you know, picking salmon berries and blackberries and stuff. And um, after talking to Will yesterday, a uh, memory popped in my head of when I was, I must have been about 
uh, eight or nine, we were berry picking on uh, Snake Lake Mountain, which is a uh, that's what we call it locally. I don't know if it's different on a topographical, but there's a road that leads from Aleknagik Road that goes between Dillingham and the village of Aleknagik at the lake uh, that branches off of that road and cuts around this mountain with the sheer cliff on one side and then goes back to the backside to Snake Lake. But there's a uh, vast tundra, you know, around the base of this mountain that we would, the beautiful, pristine berry picking, I'm telling you fat blueberries, blackberries, salmon, it's just greatest place on earth to pick berries. We were up in there, and uh, I remember there was three of us. It was me, my grandma, and uh, one of my aunts. And uh, they were watching me because uh, my mom had just gotten a job out at Kanakanak Hospital. But anyway, uh, we are berry picking along, and, you know, I'm I'm – not as little as I was in some of my, my earliest experiences, but um, I, I wasn't ignorant to where we were. So I was always on the lookout for bears, uh, especially, you know, that time of year, they're trying to fatten up for hibernation and stuff. And uh, there was black bears around, but they were far less as populous as the coastal brownies and the coastal brown bears. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but they get enormous. Uh, so that was my main concern. Well, as we're picking berries along this slope, um, my aunt comes over and she's a little panic stricken and, uh, she's like, we need to go. And they started speaking in Yupik. And when I was younger, I could, my grandma would try to teach me, but there's a lot of pick, pick, a lot of throat sounds that I just couldn't quite, uh, catch on to nor understand when they were speaking it, but they spoke to each other in Yupik and, uh, my grandma's eyes got real big. Now, uh, I never seen my grandma with a gun, only her purse. Like I've never seen her on any hunting trip she went on. She never held a gun. I never seen her with any kind of firearm whatsoever. Um, the, the bag she wore all the time when she was out and about was one that she would put, not just hang off her shoulder, but like over her head kind of body wrap, like uh, those man purses they advertise or whatever. But she had one of those kind of bags she had sewn herself. Uh, whenever my aunt was done speaking, she immediately reached in and pulled out uh, a forty-five seventy revolver. Like, I didn't even know <laughs> my grandma knew what a gun was. Yeah, I mean, I knew she knew what a gun was, but seeing her handle one was just very foreign to me at that point. Um, she pulled it and, uh, told me, grab the bucket and come on. Uh, I started looking around. She goes, no, she, she grabbed me by my shoulder and she said, no, no, don't look over anywhere. You just start walking. You start walking back the path towards the car. Cause we, uh, we had one of my dad's little Volkswagen bugs. It was like a cheap man's four by four back there, um, to get back up on this little road that led up to the berry picking area. <laughs> so I just listen to my grandma. I start walking, and her and my aunt are uh, heads on a swivel and backing, walking behind me. But I, you know, I'm a kid. I'm curious. I'm trying to try to figure out. And every time I try to look back at them, either her or my aunt would say, "Keep moving. Don't run. Keep moving." So I'm thinking, "Oh crap! There's a bear, and I won't be able to get to see my grandma shoot it." You know, is what I was thinking. But uh, we get back to where 
the little Volkswagen was parked and I just popped the door open, leaned the seat forward, set my berry buckets in there and my uh, little handheld berry picker thing. And uh, I set it down and kind of, I was feeling dejected like I had missed something. Well, I, I pulled the seat back because, you know, they say get in the back and, you know, shut the seat, leave the door open or whatever, we're right behind you. And at this point, you know, even if they yelled at me, I was going to look out the rear window. As I look out the rear window and they're backing out back towards the Volkswagen, uh, my aunt jumps around to the to the passenger side or the driver's side, opens the door and starts the Volkswagen and is putting it in gear and yelling at the open door on the passenger side, come on, come on. And I'm looking out the, the small window of the, the rear of the bug, little Volkswagen, and I see my grandma. She's about 20 feet now from the Volkswagen. And it kind of is uphill from the direction of the vehicle uh, to where we came from because then it slopes back down a little ways later. It's kind of like a little rise there. And um, as her body clears and gets onto the little, uh, like, dirt, gravel-type, you know, cut-in road, cat road, basically, um, to get into the car, she had the gun pointed out. And all we saw, well, all I saw was a large silhouette of one of these things just coming up over the rise as we got out of Dodge. And again, that was in the fall. You know, that that's a scary story, but it cracks me up that your grandma pulls out a forty five seventy revolver. <laughs> yeah, it no, it was no joke, a forty five seventy because once she got in the car, um, she was uh, telling my aunt that it was very heavy and she didn't like carrying a forty-five seventy. So I, I just knew it was a big-ass revolver. I didn't know exactly what it was until she stated what it was when she set it on the floorboard of the car. Yeah, a handheld bazooka. Uh, if you know firearms, that's a massive round. My grandma was five-foot-nothing, like, you know, barely 100 pounds, a little old native woman. Uh-huh. I had no idea they made handguns that are forty-five, seventy. I know that the uh, the rifle has probably got quite a kick to it. Yeah, I shot one one of those revolvers since, and it bulged the barrel. Thankfully, uh, it didn't blow up in my face. But yeah, that's a quite a bit of wallop for a handgun. But this, this, I mean, I was still a little kid, so the the visual of my grandma with this hand cannon, literally hand cannon. And she wasn't trembling. She showed no fear. She was resolute. If, you know, if anything, you know, got out of hand, I had no doubt she was going to do what she had to do or whatever. But yeah. So, I mean, so having these experiences over my life, when I hear of people, you know, um, I don't, I don't know if they may want to do it for any kind of, uh, like I'm gonna be the one that discovers this thing. I'm gonna befriend it, and you know, kind of like Coco the Gorilla. I'm gonna teach it sign language. We'll be buddies, kind of thing. I, I I've never been able to wrap my mind around that because I've absolutely never, not never it, seen anything but terror, like aggression. Got to go. Yeah, that mindset comes from ignorance, and oh, and definitely. if you have a real encounter with one of these things that ignorance is corrected instantly. Yeah. 
And, you know, um, I, I've given you some of the extreme things that have happened, but there's been plenty of hoops, tree bang. Actually, we saw one one time, no trees around. It was mocking the tree knocking sound, like, you know, you know how you can use your tongue to click off the top of your yeah tongue pops uh, off your yeah. mouth? Yeah, it was imitating a tree knock. Like, it sounded just like two bats hitting each other. But this thing was standing, you know, a hundred yards away in the marsh, making the sound. It was originating from it, and it wasn't moving. Um, we're we're just about out of time, so we're going to wrap up pretty quick. But um, what uh, can you give us a little bit of an insight about what your family elders told you about the hairy man, and also the fact that. Um, you see their evidence, you see the footprints all the time and it's just, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to say mundane, but it's, 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 it's commonplace. Yeah. You get complacent to it. Definitely. Um, what we were always told is, uh, always have someone watching the trees, uh, Never be alone and turn your back to the trees. If you hear any sound you don't recognize, get to safety. And that was, you know, pretty much the gist of it. You know, I want to tell you something. Areas you don't go. Right. So that there's there's a long history, a long understanding of these things. Um. So one thing I kind of wanted to share that I thought it's a little bit humorous is I was out with a friend of mine yesterday. We'd planned this months in advance to go to this one particular area. And we're hearing um, like the loudest woodpecker we've ever heard in our life and footsteps off to our left. And then off to the right is a ruckus of owls which is very un-owl-like. And this is happening at the exact same time that Will's texting me the stuff that you had encountered. So it's kind of humorous. I'm like trying to pay attention to my environment (laughs) and look at these texts at the same time. Like, wow, this is the same thing. You know, I'm like, (laughs) it's those owls. (laughs) You know, and that's one of the things that, you know, I'm not a do-gooder. I want to save everybody or anything like that. But I, I, you know, thinking about it, since you know reliving these things there's a part of me that wants to uh i I don't know protect people in a way like i mean there's thousands i i I didn't realize it was that many per year go missing up here like and i'm sure some of them you know they go off in the woods and off themselves or you know even if even if we had 10 serial killers you know that that killed 50 people a year let's say that, what about the rest of them? You, you know what I mean? Like sure. it, it just doesn't it that doesn't add up. No, it, it doesn't add up at all. I mean, it's if a percentage of these are ex- explainable, okay, by normal circumstances, somebody got lost, you know, they fell in the river and all that sort of thing. Two thousand a year, two thousand annually, and yeah. the population, you know, Alaska is not exactly an overpopulated state. I mean, it's it's bigger than a lot no, of countries. We got like a half million spread throughout the state, and the majority of them in Anchorage and Fairbanks. You know, right, right. So there's there's that 
in conjunction with the information, you know, the the background uh, and the experiences that you you have. So you take all that information in its totality. And, and yeah, it and it's does. not just unique to me. I I, I have plenty no. of relatives with you know plenty of stuff. I mean, all up and down the Nushigak River drainage is just a. I don't want to call it a hot spot because that just sounds cliche and corny, but it's it's where they are. I, I mean, and grant you, they're everywhere, but for whatever reason, it seems to be a, a bunch in that area from from one side of the mountains to the other and on up the river must and a, all over the state. Must be a lot of food availability. Well, it's the largest salmon return in the world. Oh, there we Bristol go. Bay. Yeah. Yeah, so it feeds the Nushigak, the Wood River, the Quijack, you know, and it, uh, there's an abundance for sure. I mean, the bull moose out there get just monstrous themselves. The coastal brown bears are just brutes, huge bears, you know, world-class hunting. All right, fellas, listen, we're going to wrap this up. Fred, stay with us, will you? Yeah, certainly. All right, folks, stay tuned for the next segment. In, in the UK who interviewed me for a book he's writing and uh, we talked a long time so I'm a little bit hoarse so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn the microphone over to you David and uh, tell us what if you, you've experienced okay great um, I mean it wasn't a very long experience but uh, it was an experience nevertheless um, so I used to live in Carson City Nevada and I used to drive up uh, it's called well, King Street, and it takes you all the way up to uh, Kings Canyon is what they call it. And it's just over the ridge from Lake Tahoe. And where I was, where I used to go, I used to park the car, play guitar, sing, write music, you know, just in the middle of nowhere. It's just really a great place to do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I was, uh, out of many times, I was in the SUV and I was playing, had the window down. It was, I have to say probably around May of 2004. And, um, I was uh, just playing, you know, it was writing, rocking out. And, um, and I, I had my windows down. Like I said, it, I heard some like shrub moving, <clears throat> which I really didn't think much about it. Um, cause you know, there's a lot of, there's jackrabbits, there's, there's deer there's a lot of stuff out there anyway so I, I kept playing but then I heard it again and I was like well you know what's going on so I uh, pumped the brake lights so I could see behind me because that's where the sound was coming from and there was uh, some medium sized sagebrush and I saw this face it was huge it was just this face it had these lamb chops. It looked like a human with a heavy brow, real heavy brow, almost primitive looking, excuse me, and uh, with these lamb chops, and it was just staring at me. Um, yeah, I, I, it took me a, a few seconds to realize what I was looking at, um, and I just turned the car on and hightailed it out of there. It, it was scary. <laughs> hey, David, I want to ask you a real quick question. So sure. you're looking at this 
face. I'm going to ask you a few questions on it. Sure. But it's uh, you said it had these lamb chops. Starting off with the size of the head, so you, it was bigger than a human. Oh yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. it, it, and it was this size. Yeah. Okay, and it's got uh, exaggerated or pronounced uh, brow ridge, really heavy. Yes. Uh, sounds like a guy I used to work with. Um, so <laughs> 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 but the question I have are so it sounds like you got to look at the eyes. What I want to know is. Can you kind of dig into your memory and what are your thoughts as far as the placement of the eyes, the proportion of the eyes up or down on the head? In other words, I've heard people say that they they saw the face and they actually they saw that pronounced brow ridge and the eyes were higher up the forehead than they would be for a human. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just curious if you could comment on that. Yeah, so, you know, it's been a while, but I do remember it had a real, I couldn't see hair on the top. All I saw was a real big forehead with the the real heavy brow, and the eyes were a bit lower than, I, I guess, in proportion with the head, with, with the front of the head. It seemed to be lower uh, okay. than a human. Um, so the <clears> eyes were further that down, is what you're saying? Further, further down, yeah. Okay. Further okay. down, it, it, yeah. Um, that's what I can pull from a memory, because I mean, it was only like a matter of like maybe a second or two, you know, maybe three seconds. But I just remember seeing forehead and a heavy brow, and the eyes were lower. And this guy was was brow. he crouched behind the uh, he must brush. have been he must have been on all fours because the sagebrush isn't all that tall you know yeah right um and so he must have been like you know creeping crawling you know and um I just saw that face just peering through that sagebrush and uh yeah and I didn't even know what Bigfoot I I wasn't even into Bigfoot I or 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 whatever's out there in the in the forest you know I. <clears throat> but uh it was uh it was surreal and i just hightailed it out of there <laughs> it me did out. you did you get a look I at the lips think at he all? Was enjoying my music huh yeah yeah maybe well that was my next question were you playing heavy metal you know some led zeppelin what, what? i actually i remember the song i was playing i was on an acoustic guitar and i was playing heaven besides you by alice in chains so i usually write my music and then i'll just kind of break up the monotony with with playing like a another band you know and i i remember i was playing heaven beside you by allison chains <clears throat> but i don't know how long that dude was there uh, he you maybe know? he's a fan you know. who knows uh <laughs> you know hey it's great <laughs> well okay uh, but the joking aside uh and i'm yeah. i'm i apologize i'm just but you got my curiosity up um did you see the mouth at all? Did you see, you know, like the lips or maybe describe the face a little bit? I didn't see lips. <clears throat> what I saw was a long line that was in like a bow, upside down bow, kind of a shape, you know, like um, uh, from like the left part of the chin. And then it goes up around where the lips would be. And then it comes down on the other side and it was long. I know that. So the dude had a big mouth, but, um, 
<clears throat> I, I didn't see the lips. I just saw the crease of where the mouth is. Yeah, right. And what color was and, the uh, hair? I just saw it as dark. Okay. I can't tell you the exact color. It was, <clears throat> it was uh, I, don't, I can't say if it was black or brown, but it was dark. The, the way he was peering through that, <clears throat> I'm sorry, excuse me, that sagebrush, I, I, I couldn't see a lot. But uh, I did see, like, the nose was bridged. Um, the eyes were dark, but I could see whites. Um, and uh, it, the nose was big, bigger than a human's, but it was bridged like a human's. <clears throat> I mean, and, and the guy's head, or I don't know if it was male or female, but um, it was like the size of like a basketball. You know, it was pretty big. <clears throat> And uh, yeah, I just hightailed it out of there. I was uh, so so. David, let, let fear me... set in, man. <laughs> so David, well, first of all, uh, "Heaven Besides You" is a great song. Probably probably their their best, I think, besides "Down in the Hole." But um, anyways, you mentioned that it was staring at you. Was it uh, a mean stare or was it a curious stare? Do you think it was a blank stare? It was it was like a stare, like, "Hey, I'm checking you out." It didn't have any, I, I didn't feel anything from it. I didn't get any bad vibes. I just fear because there's something huge looking at me and I took off, but um, I didn't, it wasn't angry. It wasn't, it, it was completely benign, I, I believe. I mean, that thing could have got me, you know, I had the window open. It could have grabbed me if it was, you know. So now this had was, malintent. In, this was in, this was in Nevada. Carson outside of Carson uh -huh. City okay well it was actually in Carson City it, it, I don't know if you guys know Carson City well at all but there's um a mountain with the big C on it for you know they call it Sea Hill for Carson City and it's behind that and you go up Kings Street up to Kings Canyon and you go it hits gravel road and there's a big roundabout where people park and they walk up to the waterfalls right there but I went further on a real bumpy road <clears throat> there's like a little hidden valley back there and it's just below Timberline and that's where it happened. <clears throat> and it's just over the ridge from Lake Tahoe. And so I, uh, and you were inside your vehicle. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was so in a rental probably a good place to be. because yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Um, but, you know, I had the windows down and it, it was kind of warm. It was May. It was starting to get warmer. and It was a really nice night. They had the moon out. It, I don't, I like to say it was full, but I, I can't tell you if it was really full, but it was uh, enough to illuminate a little bit. And then my brake lights just, you know, illuminated what was behind me. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you're in your car or vehicle. Where was mm -hmm. this thing in relation to you? If, you know, if you're looking, say 12 o'clock would be the hood where was this thing okay it would have been at <clears throat> let's see six would be my back so i would say 7 30 eight o'clock uh, okay about, so it's to your left i'd say it's 20 feet left away rear. yeah yes okay. on my driver's side yeah 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 <clears throat> it was uh like i said about like 20 30 feet away maybe it's that. Yeah. And it's just one of those Wednesday, Thursday, Friday moments, right? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday moments? Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> what the heck is this thing? Yeah. Um, so this really was a, a short encounter, but it was like, what, let me ask. And you're probably wondering, why is it there and what's its intent or purpose? What were your thoughts? Uh, well, I never thought of that. Um, off the top of my head, I'm thinking, well, there's a lot of game out there, you know, and there's there's waterfalls, there's there's water and food, and and there's just a lot of uh, resources. Um, I don't know. I, maybe my music attracted it. You know, it's like, what's this crazy stuff happening? And just went and checked it out. Um, I mean, I'm I'm flattered. <laughs> But it was scary as shit. <clears throat> Excuse my language. It was yeah. really scary. And uh, um, but like I said, at that time, I didn't. I I was not in this world of Sasquatch or or, or any of that. Um, this was, like I said, it was 2004. Um, you know, I I was talking with somebody about it uh, some years back, and uh, it's funny because later that year, that movie, and I hate comparing to movies but they came out with van helsing you know mr hyde with the cigar and the big lamp chops yeah that's the closest thing i can paint a picture but it was different but that's the closest thing i can compare it to but it wasn't white skin it was uh darker like tanned like like really tanned you know but uh yeah that's uh have, have you been have you been back to this area? Uh yeah, I went back once with my girlfriend. <laughs> we were uh we were on a road trip because we're from Sacramento originally. And I moved back to Sacramento and I met my girlfriend and anyway, so I said, let's go up to Virginia City. And so we, we went, I said, Hey, let's park and crash up at Kings Canyon over the night. And then when I was in the car, I told her about the story. <laughs> she goes, let's go to the Nugget and go gambling. Let's get out of here. But that was, yeah, nothing happened last time I went there. That was about four years ago when I went there. It was funny. I scared her. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> I can almost guarantee you, you bring that up with your girlfriend and you know they're probably not oftentimes not as adventurous as they're like okay let's get out of here yeah you know but seeing that that sighting made me want to go back a lot you know because it that's what what gave me the you know the spark to like like man what is this what is what's going on you know and yeah uh, it does so when i took her i didn't tell her until we were actually in the car like parked there and i said oh by the way babe (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then she goes, let's go gamble let's get out of here i'm like okay but uh yeah so it was a crazy experience it is it is but it's it's pretty typical and you know i just got to say this is most the vast majority gosh i don't know 99 of all the encounters are like that they're very brief they're very short and they're shocking without exception yeah I just wish that I could have, uh, you know, I've, I've heard, so, I've been listening to this podcast and I've heard so many great stories like they're walking through the woods and they're being flanked and, and they, they go here and they go there and then they meet up with it and then they run and they shoot at it. They, they leave. It's just, you know, mine's not that 
interesting, but I mean, it, it's an experience. So. No, I think it is. You got a real good look at it. Well, listen, um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I appreciate you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And if, if anything else happens, get a hold of us by all means. And well, I will, I will. So I, I just want to let you know, I live over in Elmira, New York now moved here about three years ago. And I hear there's a lot of sightings out here and I, Oh yeah. I would, you know, cause we're right <laughs> on the Pennsylvania border. Yeah. Um, there's lots of stuff the there, David. Here. Yeah. And I'm, I'd like to just get out and just go hiking and just look for it. <laughs> I'm kind of hooked. <laughs> Try not to go alone. Oh, I will not go alone and I will keep a transponder with me and, uh, we're armed, you know, we're licensed handgun owners and, uh, I have a rifle. It will be fine. All right. Yeah. Dave, next time, next time play, uh, no excuses or down in the hole. Maybe, maybe, maybe that'll attract them. <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> Allison Chains man, right on. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. We'll do. I really appreciate uh you guys. It's an honor to be on your your podcast. We appreciate it, David. The honor's all ours. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Well, thank you again, David. Everyone stay tuned for the next segment. <laughs> Welcome back from the break, everyone. Uh, David's story was very interesting. And, you know, a lot of times people won't uh, reach out if they have a short encounter like that. But, uh, you know, we like to have all of those, you know. It, it doesn't matter the length of the experience, folks. Um, sometimes the short ones like that are just as interesting as the ones that take an hour to tell. Um, these experiences help other people who've had similar things happen to them. So, you know, by all means, keep them coming, folks. So, fellas, what well, are we? Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I just want to comment. I want to say, I would say the majority of our, a lot of the encounters that we get are precisely that. Very short. You know, you don't get an opportunity. You're not in a frame of mind to say, hey, Bigfoot, just stick around for a second. I need to get a little longer look at you or whatever. Um, you're not in that frame of mind. It's it's shocking. It's out of this world. So, yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying those short encounters are excellent. Well, they're just as relevant as the ones who are more in-depth. So, um, you know, we're definitely interested in hearing everybody's encounters, regardless of how much exposure you had. So um, I know we have lots of questions. So, Tom, let's start with you. Okay, I'm going to jump in. Will, this is this is your area of expertise. The whole area, the whole thing is, but this especially, this is Pip in Australia, and Pip is the daughter of Annie, who we've had we had Annie and Daryl on uh, recently. So, Pip wants to know, what do we know about Will? What do you know about group movements? Do you map the activity? And are you able to predict the movement of these groups? Well, first of all, hi, Pip. Thanks for the question. Sure, I appreciate it. Um, yes, I guess in a nutshell. Um, it goes back to, 
you know, things that, and, you know, I mentioned, you know, Green and Hinden because they were sort of my foundation, you know, after I had my encounter um, of information, you know, in the subjects that kind of gave me a real footing of what direction to go in. So they talked about, um, you know, these things having patterns. And, and they do seem to have patterns. So I, I took that to heart and in my field work started looking for uh, things that repeated and, and seeing if I could figure out what these patterns were. Now, first of all, the patterns can be disrupted very easily, you know, by human behavior, interactions, things like that. So um, they're very touchy about their patterns. Um, so going out in their environment where they are doing things can disrupt that pattern and, and they can and they'll change it to where... You know, you don't find out where they're doing things again. But having said that, um, when I lived in Vancouver, Washington, um, starting in, let me think, would have been the mid-80s, um, I, I linked up with uh, a local newspaper, and the photographer for that newspaper showed, took me out showed me, because he grew up in that area, showed me where um, he knew of people who, people he grew up with that had these experiences. And he would point out where they were. So I started working that area and looking for these repeated patterns. And over time, I figured out that, um, you know, by looking at where and plotting where these things happened, you know, over the course of a year and then looking at the following year and the year after that, that these, there were patterns that developed. So I was able to, uh, I say track the group and I mean track the group by follow their movement patterns you know not being out in the woods actually tracking them although he did that occasionally um but tracking or plotting their movements you know their cycles and they were cycles these movements in this you know three thousand plus square mile area south of mount st helens um that pattern did change later um let me think it would have been late 90s that that pattern started to change it actually started to change in, in 1990 but um you know with people moving into that region and building and stuff like that the patterns changed but before that um it was cyclic now what they would do is they would come into an area let's say uh, and I, I would just call them feeding areas and and i don't know the exact size of each feeding area but let's let's just We'll throw out a random figure. We'll say, you know, five square miles. That was a feeding area for this group of four. Um, and if you divided that area up, let's say, into four parts, right? Um, you know, if we had the northwest, northeast, southwest, southeast quadrant, let's say. And it's, that's not, it's more complex than that. And there were more sections than just four. But just for the sake of discussion, we'll use, we'll use that as a model. Let's say... Year number one, they would be in the northwest quadrant, right? Um, in let's say the month of May, that's where they were. The following year, they would come in the same time period, let's say April, May time frame. Uh, they might be in the southeastern corner this time. The following year, they might come in, they'd come in roughly the same time period, and they might be in the southwestern corner. So they would change each time they would come in. They wouldn't come to this exact same place each time, which would make them extremely difficult to track. But you had to sort of take a, a little more of a macro um, view of the area and what was going on. And I'd get this by reports, you know, coming in from the areas. So yes, they can be tracked. 
at least the ones in regular patterns like that that are undisturbed. Yeah, and I want to comment on that real quick. When I heard you talking about that years ago, I was fascinated. I was like, well, my goodness, this is tangible proof. Again, this is when I was kind of on the on the fence about <clears throat> whether the creatures existed or not, or whether you could find them. <clears throat> Excuse me. But hearing you talk about this, because you've talked about it in the past, uh, you know, that was tangible proof that you could, you know, that they're tracked. You can, you can track them. But you also said another thing I want to comment on, and that is um, you were told that if you're in their feeding area after dark, you'll regret it. Can you comment on that a little bit? Well, you're disturbing that behavior again, especially when they're out looking for food. I mean, if you're out trying to get dinner and somebody's in there messing up your hunt, you'd be kind of ticked off too, right? Um, <clears throat> so that's something that we learned, especially in Yakult. You know, that was sort of uh, a big piece. And Now, they that was outside of the normal movement behaviors because typically they're only in an area a couple of weeks and they move on. But uh, they, they stayed in that area for nine months. So they must have been getting what they needed in that area for that sustained amount of time. Um, but, yeah, it was if we, we learned that if we stayed out of their areas at night, then they would continue to come in and do those things, you know, so we could observe that behavior. Uh, if we, if, but then they also wouldn't come inside the yard of the family's house or the family's property. Um, so it was sort of a, it was sort of an unwritten agreement, you know, if, if you want to use that analogy, uh, that as long as we stayed, you know, we followed the rules. If we stayed in our area, they would come up to the boundary of that. Sometimes we could observe what was going on and listen, hear things they wouldn't cross that and we wouldn't cross into their area. And, and then, and this would continue when that was violated by a PhD of all people, a primatologist, then that completely fell apart. Uh, you know, they left the area and never came back. I don't know if that answered the question, but (laughs) no, no, that, yeah, very good answer. And the fact that you guys had a kind of a, for lack of a better word, a sort of a detente, uh, with the creatures, you know, without actually having a, a summit. Uh, I just thought that was kind of interesting, mutually understood. Well, it was interesting. I mean, it just sort of happened. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily planned. What I did was I followed, you know, the protocols that, you know, they talked about my first couple of years of college and, and anthropology courses. They talked about if you're going to observe, um, you know, a species in the wild, you, you can't have any interference whatsoever. Otherwise, your results are tainted. Uh, so that kind of stuck in my mind was that was the model to to utilize in doing this. So what we did was, um, and it wasn't just going there with this in mind. It was listening to what the family said about what happened and when things happened. And then sort of, uh, you know, going from there, you know, utilizing that information to say, well, okay, this is what I think we should do. And that's what I did. And it worked. Um, you know, hopefully that'll happen again. And I've got, we've got a number of locations, of course, that we're working on where that may happen, but you can't always say that's going to happen because oftentimes their behavior is very aggressive. So this just happened to be, they were, you know, encroaching on, um, you know, a home and property, a little farm. 
and um, and we weren't there individually. Or there was always you know four or five of us in a group there. So with the family members. So um, you know they weren't they they were very uh, cautious about their behaviors until they were away from the, the house. If they were out, you know, in the fields, they'd be a little more boisterous, but, um, you know, with running and, and screaming and stuff like that. But if they approached the house, they were very quiet. They were very cautious. But again, it was, it was sort of a boundary that was set and, and both sides seemed to observe the rules. Well, you mentioned anthropology, just out of curiosity, did you take uh, anthropology classes because of your experience and wanted to learn more. Oh yeah, yeah. When I when I left the military and went to college, I uh, that was you know kind of a, a thing in my mind. I thought, well, I want to see what sort of classes there are that might be helpful, you know, in my my knowledge about or learn, getting gaining gaining knowledge uh, about the creatures. Sorry, I had a little moment there. Um, that was the first couple of years. Then when I went on to Washington State University my major changed because of what was available. So um, it was a branch campus at the time. There's a full full campus there now, but at that time uh, it was just a branch campus. So the majors were limited. I, I ended up majoring in psychology. So uh, beginning beginning with anthropology, then moving on to psychology. So really both, both, both fields served me well in this topic. Well, we're going to jump to we, we taught we addressed Pip's question. We're going to go to the uh, east about 12 to 1500 miles to New Zealand. And Bernie has a really good question. Bernie says, Hello, uh, Jevonine and team. He says, I'd like to know if you guys have heard any stories or information about Sasquatch. And he uses a local term, looks like it's Maoro or Mehau, Mohau. He says, uh, <clears throat> We've been listening to your show via YouTube and recently subscribed on Podbean. So thank you very much. And we enjoy listening to the encounters. We have no native source of information about the Mohau, except for a few articles uh, from the native Maori, Maori myths and legends. So <clears throat> fascinated. Um, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. New Zealand, what? What do you know? Do we have anything on that? Um, off the top of my head, I don't. I do know, <clears throat> you know, remember we talked about um, my friend Kevin who owned uh, the Eagles Cliff store and campground just south of Mount St. Helens. We did the big event there in uh, 1992. Last time I talked to Kevin, he had sold the property and he was moving to New Zealand. And he mentioned something about, he had some knowledge about his wife. He was marrying a, a gal from New Zealand, so she knew about this particular subject. But that's pretty much all I know. But I, I have heard that there are things there as well. Uh, something we'll have to look into. Yeah, and, and I think that's an open invitation for any of our audience in New Zealand. If you have information or encounters, uh, shoot us an email, questions at creekdevil.com love to hear from you absolutely we'll we'll address that as soon as we get some more information okay so here's another question to kind of switch topics but uh did you ever hear about jane goodall and her trip to ecuador and why she's probably a believer did you ever hear that story um i haven't really followed that now 
I, I know that she she does think that they may exist, but I'm not. yeah. So there's an article out there. It's actually an interview, and anybody that's listening, all you have to do is type in Jane Goodall and Bigfoot, and it'll probably be like the first one that comes up. But it's kind of fascinating because what she says is that she was researching in Ecuador. And this had nothing to do with Bigfoot at all. She was had no no interest in the subject. She all she was trying to do was she was researching monkeys and gorillas. And what she was trying to find out is that okay, gorillas don't have tails, monkeys do, but are there any form species of monkeys that don't have tails? And so she went to Ecuador and she talked to four individual communities, and they were all separate. Because they, you know, the only way that they could communicate with each other was, you know, like hunters basically going from town to town. And in all four of these communities, she asked the question, you know, do you ever see monkeys that don't have tails? And all four of the communities said, oh, yeah, we see them, but they're about seven feet tall and they walk on two legs. And from that experience, she kind of. Now, the article implies that she might believe in it, but underneath the surface there, you can tell that she is probably a believer, even though she doesn't come out right and say it. But that's just kind of an interesting story. So have you ever heard any other interviews with her where she's talked about it? I, I don't. You know, I, I don't sit and listen to a lot of interviews and things. Um, I, I don't just don't have time for that. But, uh, you know, people like her are, are going to sort of, you know, make it where they don't, they're not going to dive headlong into it because it's kind of a, it's kind of a career killer. I mean, even if you're at the end of your career, uh, you don't want to be, you know, known as a kook. So, um, now privately she may very well, you know, but, uh, yeah, the interesting thing, the most interesting thing that I found with this article or this interview in the story is that they were all they were four communities but they had no contact with each other just how we've talked about how native americans you know there are 300 or more tribes and that don't have any communication with each other and they all describe the creature they have different names for it but it's not like they're all in this big conspiracy to come up with this this fake tale of a creature that doesn't exist yeah and it's like that in other parts of the world as well so yeah, it's uh, that, you know, you're not going to get a whole bunch of people from different areas unconnected with one another saying the same thing and it being, you know, contrived. Tom, you got a question? Well, what I'm going to do, <clears throat> I've got one, I've got a kind of a comment, and this is from two of our followers, Jim and Sharon, and they really like our show and they like our work. Um what they're, I want to make sure I got the names correct. So uh, if I if I messed up on this, guys, uh, please accept my apologies. It was a very sincere email uh, from one of our listeners, and this has to do with the topic that we are, you, you know, we're, we're limited in scope. Our scope is on Bigfoot, and it's on the Bigfoot that you know we're we're very down to earth on this thing. This gentleman gives a description. He's had a Bigfoot encounter, and he said it was, uh, you know, kind of shocking. But he also had an encounter with something that we don't really touch on, and that is a dogman encounter. And he's very, 
very detailed on what he saw, tail and all that kind of stuff. I just want to say that um, we don't really have an opinion on it because, again, like I said, this is this is beyond the scope of what our interest is. So this is really kind of a uh, saying that you know we don't we're not into we're not into the dogman thing. But if you you know if you have an opinion on it, that's fine. Um, I don't know, Will. What are your thoughts as far as you know, I think we just keep our focus on what we keep our focus on. Right. Yeah. I was, <clears throat> excuse me, the author I was talking to earlier, uh, and I touched on that. And I said, yeah, I, I maintain my focus. You know, I have one focus, and that's where I stay. Yeah, we stick with what we know. Uh, and here's my kind of twenty-five cent opinion on this, and that is, uh, Bigfoot meets all the criteria for something that would, you know, live right here on terra firma. Uh, dog man, something that is part ape or part primate and part dog would have to be something in the paranormal realm. And just, you know, again, it's, we don't have any way to research it. So we just, we're not, we don't have an interest in it, but I want to, I just want to say respectfully, uh, thank, I want to thank this person for writing this. So absolutely. Next question. Okay, so this comes from Deborah, and this is from uh, a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago. But she says, okay, first of all, she says, great show. And she said, she asks, how is it that when someone has seen a Sasquatch, one tends to see them again? Does this seem to indicate that, uh, that they get tuned in? Like people, after they see one, they start to recognize the signs? And they, that's why a lot of people have seen more than one. Well, I think seeing, seeing more than one probably depends more on, you know, being in the right time at the right place. You know, if you're in an area that's, you know, has a good population, you're more likely to see them more often. Um, I know in my own case, doing this for so many years now, I've, I've seen them twice. <clears throat> and the second time was purely accidental, which is actually a rarity with this. Um, first time I think it was more intentional, but, um, um, yeah, I, I just think it's, you know, being at the right time, right place. And, and the majority of witnesses who see them usually one time is what they've seen them. It's not, not multiple times. Well, I want to jump in on that. Um, you, you saw the first two, which was life changing, but a year or two before that is when you saw the disemboweled remains of some probably a coyote or something and then you saw the footprints right mm-hmm. so that yeah they were in the area yeah they were definitely in the area you see these footprints and again you're just like what the heck then you see the creatures but in my mind um you had a couple of other experiences you had the clark ranch you had and i think that's the is that the one where somebody threw a rock up the hill and then a Oh, Harpoon came flying back John, at you. John's brother. Now you got to remember, there were two different areas. Okay, and I don't think I've articulated this. Um, there were when looking back on these movement patterns. Okay, the first time I had the encounter, and also that kind of ties into the couple incidents years before that, when I was you know ten, eleven years old, 
when we lived in a different location, but it's the same. It was the same movement pattern. In other words, um, and this is something John Green went back and verified after I was I was gone in Europe. Um, I told him what I thought was going because he asked me what I thought was going on, and it was the same time period each year that something would happen in the same general areas. So I told him, I said, well, I think they're coming down every six months down the Puyallup River to the South Hill area, for people familiar with that area. Uh, and back in those days, it was heavy forest up there. It wasn't, it's all built up now, but, um, and then they would go back up. They would follow the river down every six months. And he went back and checked, you know, reports and things and was able to verify that. He told my parents that, that I was right on the money. Um, the other area was kind of an Nisqually River movement that was a different group of creatures. So we would, we'd had these experiences in both those areas, but it was at the time period each year when something was going on, when their movement put them in that area. Okay. So I'm going to grill you a little bit. I, I apologize, <laughs> but I think our listeners, I know I have these questions. Okay. So going back to the incident where you and some guys were camping, right? And I think one of the fellows in the group threw a rock up the hill. And then very shortly thereafter, a harpoon, you know, a piece of uh, tree or something comes flying back at you guys, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and then you go charging up there. Here's And then you look down and you see these things <laughs> ransacking your camp. Yeah. Silhouetted against the fire. What, what, what is, <laughs> What's that? Yeah, they were silhouetted against the fire. <laughs> they were silhouetted against the fire, but you could tell that these were, you could differentiate between people and oh, these creatures. Yeah, you could see how hairy they were in the shape and stuff. They weren't, they weren't human. Okay. So in my mind, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would call that a sighting. Not, not as pronounced as the other ones. Yeah. But you saw them. I, I well, you know. I'm not what's considered a Bigfoot believer. I'm, I'm more skeptic. So I even look at my own experiences, and and for me, they got to be you know pretty solid for me to say, okay, I, I saw the creatures. Yeah, we did see him, um, and you know my my buddy Milo, he he would and John would back that up. You know they were there, um, but it's funny. I guess in my own mind, it's because you know I wasn't standing there looking at it to count it as a sighting um same with the experience at fort lewis i mean you know there was there was something there the guys all commented on it but i'm not going to put myself on limb and say well it was it was definitely a bigfoot because i don't know and i don't know if it was yeah. or not i think it was i don't know sure well and then you saw i guess you saw eyeshine at the at the uh yakult oh yeah incident oh yeah and my favorite one was the eye shine where you're walking down the access road for the oil pipeline. Oh, <laughs> see, the, those are things that happened. I don't, I don't count them as a sighting, but you know, you have to say, well, what else was that? right? I understand. What else was that? You yeah, know? I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. The, you didn't see the creature, but you saw the eyes. I, I just love the story, though. You're, you're like, okay, now listen, guys. Nobody panic. We're just gonna walk. And then we broke into a panic. <laughs> <laughs> and we yeah. took we took like three steps and it was pandemonium <laughs> right yeah <clears throat> but again that plan went right out the door <laughs> but again these these situations happen within kind of a narrow time frame and it was the time frame 
that that group of creatures was in that area. So, um, it, so all these areas, it could be expected all these, that you would have these kind of experiences while they were there. I and mean, we were just a bunch of teenagers. So, are, and they're all more or less within the same area. Is that what you're saying? Yes, they were. They were all, okay. they were all, all within right. a couple of miles of each other except for the gray one down by the river right well that was or something was he... that was something different that was well you know clear down southern washington that was i don't know what 120 okay. miles south you know gotcha okay all right so um and that creature had been there for I, a long time i need time. to get clarification on some of this yeah that, okay. that creature had been in that area for a long time i talked to quite a few witnesses that had seen the same one yeah wow all right, so we got off on a tangent, but I think it, I think it's a good tangent. So, um, I'm, I'm going to pass the mic to Brian. Sure. Uh, well, this is from Angel or Angel, and they say that uh, those things that we've heard before that he, he or she had a a friend that saw one of these things, but they were afraid to come forward out of fear of ridicule, of course. And and they also reiterate what we've also said before is that having a show like this really is a great help for people to understand that they're they're not crazy. But anyways, though, the, the point of this, this comment that I want to ask you about, Will, is that the friend that he or she is talking about was in Afghanistan. And I'm just curious because we've talked about all parts of the world, about how this creature exists in all parts of the world. But what about the Middle East? How many accounts or, or stories have you heard about the Middle East? Not necessarily Afghanistan, but just the Mideast in general. Well, stories go all the way back to the Bible in that region. So, yeah, they're there. If you look at Ivan Sanderson's book, Chapter 17, uh, there was a Jewish scholar who was a friend of Sanderson's who Sanderson quotes in there about that region. So, you know, I'd, I'd encourage people to look that up. And again, this is kind of a, uh, it's an open invitation to anybody who has served in the military. So they've been in Afghanistan, they've been in Iraq or in the Middle East, but also any of the locals there, that have information on this and we'd love to hear from you so i'd say also anybody who was in vietnam you know with the rock apes you know if any yes. any gis who were there would be willing to talk to us about things they may have seen or experienced you know get a hold of us yeah absolutely and we've talked about this forever uh about the parallels the repeating patterns between all these creatures the yowies you know our bigfoot um, you know, Sasquatch and, and, and also the rock apes, kind of the same thing. Yeah. Same with, you know, Eastern Europe also. I mean, just about everywhere you go. So here's a quick question. You're, you're talking about how these creatures come down and, and there's a kind of a trend that you picked up on a pattern every six months in the winter time. At the high elevations, there's a lot of snow. It's just, you know, it's really deep. I know that the game tend to move down to the lower elevations. No. Would you say that the Bigfoot is going to do the same thing? No. And and the game doesn't always move to lower elevations either. Okay. 
So the elk and the deer may stay at the high elevations, even though there's, you know, several feet of snow and that sort of thing. Yeah, just you follow the game. That's where these guys are going to be. Yeah, okay. Oh, Will, I have a question that I'll get to. But first, I just want to point out that a couple people on the YouTube comments, uh, Wallace, he said that he had an account, actually two encounters. One, I, I think there, it's a typo. The abbreviation is MY. There's no state with MY. But then also in Georgia. And then also Robert had an experience in northern Georgia. Or I'm sorry, not that far from northern Georgia. He says in mountains of uh, North Carolina. So remember, anybody that's listening to get in touch with us and and come on our show if you'd like to talk about your experiences. So my question, though, is who was the first person that, if you know, who was the first person to be credited with discovering footprints and and the first person to be credited with getting pictures? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't think I don't know that anybody's ever really documented stuff like that because uh, footprints have been around a long, long time, and, you know, there's been mentions of them you know, way back. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I have no idea on something like that. I don't think it's ever been noted. Okay, so I got a question from Sharon here, and it sounds like maybe Sharon was referred to us by our friend uh, over at Dixie Cryptid, so thank you for that. And Sharon's got a really good question, and she's trying to, from going through all this here, I think she's trying to analyze the language here. She wants to know, you know, what do all the different sounds mean? There's loud roars, there's chitter chatter, sometimes a combination. And what she wants to know is, have these ever been analyzed and correlated into categories? I don't believe so, because number one, um, it kind of depends, I think, first of all, on the situation when a noise is being made, um, you, you'd have to have quite a catalog of, you know, the setting. You know what I mean by the setting, the, the whole um, situation, the circumstances, you know, of a setting. And and to be able to compare, you know, in other words, if you have, you know, a camp set up and X number of people, and if you had how many of those same kind of situations correlated with the same kind of noises. I don't think any of that's ever been done before. No, it hasn't um, that, that we've heard of. But again, I want to thank Sharon. I think it's a really good question. It's a very good one. Very, yeah. yeah, very thoughtful. So um, I'll, I'll just give my perspective, and that is when I hear sounds, uh, I'm usually looking for the exit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, some of the sounds um, – you know, like rock clacking, things like that. Um, it's sort of like, I won't say echolocation, but it's like if they're if they're involved in a hunt, right? And you get different members of a group that's involved in that hunt. You know, they're not going to do things that are going to alert the game. So things like rock clacking uh, probably would not alert a deer. You know, they might hear it, but it wouldn't it wouldn't register as a danger, maybe. But it, you know, tells, it's really good. but it tells the individuals in the group where they are, you know, in conjunction yeah. with the game. It's an organic sound. That's a really good um, 
And this goes back to my my very first encounter, you know, that that sharp whistle. And I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, like the wood knocks, apparently they can do that, but it's it was on a show that will shall remain nameless. It's way overstated. I mean, you know, exaggerated to the point of, you know, being utterly useless. And it's probably tongue popping, not actually wood knocks. Yeah. But that was my first encounter. I actually was, you know, I told you the story a hundred times, but, you know, I took a piece of wood and I whacked a tree and it was, you know, we were in an area that was <clears throat> middle of the forest. And, and I really, this is just my conjecture, but I think that the creature responded with a sharp whistle because it was out of the ordinary. It was unexpected. Well, it was kind of an organic. It was probably more not a response to you. It was more of a response to your presence. Right. It right, was a exactly. signal to other members that hey, there's something here that we don't. We got to keep an eye on. Yes. And we left. <laughs> Good plan. Yeah. So anyway, thank thank you, Sharon. Uh, keep the questions coming. And again, that was a very thoughtful, um, insightful question. So, Will, I have a question. Do you think that it's possible that there is video evidence out there besides the Patterson film that's legit that maybe people haven't seen? Maybe because the, the person, again, doesn't want to be ridiculed or anything like that, how, how possible do you think it is that there really might be video evidence out there? Oh, there's probably video evidence out there. I mean, I've got pictures. Um, here's the thing. I, I was talking to that uh, that author in the UK earlier, and, and I said, because we talked about that, and I said, well, look. Because he, he said, you know, when you go on YouTube and places like that, he says, you know, when you really examine things, he says, most of it's just garbage that's out there. And I agreed. I said, what's really happens is people with legitimate stuff um, either don't want to face it, they certainly don't want to expose it, um, so it's, it stays hidden. People just don't want, they don't want to be, you, you would think, you know, most people think, oh, you know, if they get something in a film, they want to run out and show the world. That's not what happens. Yeah, very true. Um, and I think that's kind of a I mean, everybody's a little bit different, but, you know, that's kind of, uh, as soon as you see somebody plastering it all over the internet, you know, it's on Instagram, it's on YouTube, it's on Facebook and all over the place, you kind of wonder what the motivation is. And 99% of the time, you'll take a look at the video and you just groan. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, you know. If the first thing you do is run out and you want to show it to the world, then it's more about that person wanting attention, you know, than uh, than actually trying to do something. You know, the average person who sees things, they don't want they don't want to show people. They're afraid to. Well, part of it they're afraid. Part of it they just don't want to um, either get all the, the possible negative attention from it or just the attention. Period. Uh, but also, it's very traumatizing, you know, experiencing one of these creatures. And um, a lot of times, it's just they, they don't want to deal with it. 
And you know, case in point is the picture I have from Michigan, where the people who took the picture, they they won't talk about it. They don't want anything to do with it. They they even deny what's in the picture, and it's very clear what's in the picture. Well, and you know, you think about it. It's you've said this time and again. It's it's outside of our frame of reference for most people's frame of reference. So it's it's a shock. And I think a lot of people that we talk to, they want answers. You know, they're not looking for attention. Right. They want to stay under the radar. But at the same time, they they need somebody to, that they can share this with. Number one, they want to unburden the the because uh, it is a burden. And number two, they want answers. What is this? I want to mention something too before we get too much further. We should have mentioned it sooner. Um, a good friend of ours, Lynn Smith, who has the uh, YouTube show Bigfoot Case Files. If you're not a viewer of hers, check out her. Uh, her shows are very good. She does a really great job. She's been reading stories from some of my books recently and has done an absolutely outstanding job. So um, by all means, everybody go check her channel out and subscribe to her. Yeah, she is really good, and I gotta say her her tempo, her tone of voice, her ability to she's outstanding. Yeah, she really is. Really, and I believe well she's worth, had her own encounter. Well worth well worth checking out if you haven't haven't uh, you know seen her channel yet. So, Brian, do you have any questions? Uh, yeah, uh, okay. So this is from Vincent, and I think we've touched on this before, but this is a really good question. He asks, uh, how do you think that all the wildfires affect Bigfoot's migration and food gathering and also their habitat? Would they have to take more chances of, of being seen, perhaps, just to find food since there are opportunistic? Or, or do you guys... Um, do you think something different? I mean, do you think that they still are pretty good at being hidden, even if there are wildfires and things like that? Well, first of all, they don't really migrate. You know, that's that's a misconception. They move, they have patterns, movement patterns within their range. So it's not a migration. A migration might be like with geese. They move from one region to the next. The Sasquatch doesn't do that. They have very large ranges and they have movement they have feeding patterns, feeding routes, they do. Uh, they'll move from one, one feeding area to the next one. Um, but uh, And, you know, big cats and other, other predators do that too. So, but wildfires, wildfires are an opportunity for them because usually the game um, isn't following their normal patterns of behavior. They're, they're a little bit, you know, they're running out of fear a lot of times. And <clears throat> the Sasquatches are taking advantage of that. Um, they're not necessarily afraid of the fire. They've seen fire, you know, as long as they've been around. So they know they know how to function around that. But they also take advantage of the game, you know, as erratic movements. Um, I, they can stay hidden as well as they want to. You know, they're not, not that concerned about, you know, fire in an area and being seen. Well, Will, you've also mentioned uh, in conjunction with logging how logging has actually benefited these creatures because after an area is logged you know not only is it reprod but you get all the green leafy stuff which is what the prey animals well I remember that <clears throat> when i was up your way just a few weeks ago tom we drove through those burned areas from last year 
and yes. they, and they were full of green leafy vegetation. You know, that's, yes. that brings in, that increases the deer population. Other animals will eat that material. So when those populations increase, so do the predator populations. Right, exactly. And you know what? It also, uh, because, you know, because they're a primate, they're re- really focused on visual. They, um, you know, the, the, the prey is going to be easier to spot. Now, I imagine Absolutely. the Bigfoot is too, but yeah, they can... They have a great way of hiding just by remaining motionless. Yeah, because they're not going to look much different than a burnt-out stump, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. And so if you're walking through the forest and there's a burnt-out stump, it might reach out and swat you. You never know. <laughs> well, that would be beyond an underwear-changing moment, huh? Right. <laughs> Damn stumps. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> what happened to you when well, the well, stump hit me? Sure, it did. <laughs> but other than wildfires, though, what about hurricanes and tornadoes? Is it the same thing? Well, I'm sure there's, you know, different circumstances for each one of those kinds of events, you know, and, and they adjust accordingly. Well, now remember the movie Twister? Have either either of you guys remember that? One? Right. It goes back a few years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the cow's flying through. I would love to see that. Where look at all it got fifteen or twenty Bigfoot <laughs> getting sucked up by that thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so for all you filmmakers out there, there's a there's a uh, movie plot for you. Oh boy, <laughs> is that is that kind of like Sharknado or some of those? <laughs> totally. <yes>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, back to back to serious questions. All right, so Danny wants to know, he says, would we expect to have tree breaks in an area that seemed to have Bigfoot at least one time a year? And I think what he's talking about here is, um, you know, if they're only seen one time a year, would that be sufficient timing for these creatures to leave their mark and do tree breaks? And and before I get your response, well, I just want to say that, well, if they've only been, you know, if they only seem to be there at least one time a year, how do you know that? You know, is that just based on sighting? So they could be there quite a bit more. Who knows? Well, like I talked about with them, your movement patterns, if it's an area where they have a regular pattern established, you know, they'll come through once a year. Um, and it's, you, you can, you can base it off sightings and things like that. So, um, could you expect tree break? Sure. Absolutely. And I think that would um, kind of along, along the same lines with um, not just tree breaks, but footprints. You know, if you have the tree breaks, folks, and you see that, maybe, um, you know, if you feel comfortable, stop the car or whatever you're doing and, and take a look around and see if you see any additional evidence. I can tell you from real-world experience, there was a gentleman that told me, you need to go back there and take a look at the ground. You remember that, Will? <laughs> yeah, Tom, <laughs> did you find any footprints? No, did you look yes, on the I ground? Did, <laughs> did you look? Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> no, the first time, no, I just took a look at uh, a torn-up stump, and I was like, wow, that's interesting. And you're like, you need to go back and take a look at the ground. <laughs> 
Yeah, and you know when you see a tree break, you're, you're not always going to see any kind of tracks around. It depends on the age of the break and the ground conditions, things like that. So, but the tree break, you know, it's like, and, and there's lots of things that break trees, but you know these when these are obvious, um, you you may or may not see something, but but it's a good sign there is something there. Hey, Will, okay, so unfortunately I, I'm going to have to go here in a second. Okay. But, uh, just one question. So this is from Richie, and this is kind of a facetious question, but it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of serious because he says, so a Jeep weighs about, what, 3,500 pounds, give or take, and uh, he was wondering if a Sasquatch would be able to move a truck like that. A Jeep, sure. I have, mean, Have there been any cases of that, like where just to maybe – sent a message to somebody where they not essentially moved the car, but maybe twisted it around or something like picked it up and, and moved. Not um, moved well, you had a personal experience very similar to that. Well, that's where it just grabbed the car. It didn't move it or anything. Um, and we heard, we heard it had another person that had a similar experience too. Um, yeah, but it kept it from moving, kept it from moving. But as far as moving a car around, I, I'm not from, I don't think I've heard of a story like that before. I've heard of him being hit by Jeeps. You know, there was, remember, we talked about Buddy Fight and his friend who owned the garage and gas station. Um, and they, him and another guy were in his Jeep. And, uh, and I think it was a CJ5, and they hit one of these creatures. It was foggy, and they, you know, apparently it was on the road, and they come cruising along and run right into it. And it wasn't like Harry and Henderson's where it knocked it out. The thing just took off running. Smashed the Jeep up pretty good. And he said, well, you know, what do you tell your insurance, right? <laughs> so they, they towed the Jeep to his shop and they repaired it themselves. But yeah, it smashed it up pretty good. You know, there was one story that uh, Lee shared with me about three years ago, three, three and a half years ago. Uh, here in Oregon, it was... Uh, on a highway that I'm familiar with near one of the lakes that I'm familiar with. And a lady was driving, I believe it was a Suburban, and there was an area there, kind of a right angle turn. I, I know where it is, the area. And you have to slow down and make the turn. And she said one of these things came out and pushed her, the rear end of her vehicle so hard that I think it spun her around like 140, 150 degrees. And, you know, she recovered, got back. She zipped over to the local, I think it may have been a ranger station, and, you know, filed a report, reported this, uh, because Bigfoot did this. And they said, well, you know, we, we get reports like this once in a while. And it's actually the bears that are doing this. Uh, it's not common, but it happens enough. And <laughs> I've never heard of a bear know, doing The bears are like victims that. too. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, I've never heard of a bear doing something like that. Right, right. But the bears get, you know, they're going to take the heat for a lot of this stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, they they have victimhood too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lower self-esteem, all that. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So the bears, you know, they they get their fair share of uh, they run they have problems with these things. Oh sure, 
Well, and you've, you know, speaking about that real quick, you've talked about areas that you've been in where the Bigfoot has, the creatures are, and the bears are very, very skittish. I mean, they're skittish anyway, but black bears, uh, even more so. Yeah, there's, I have a friend who's in kind of, he lives in that area and, and we stay in touch, you know who I'm talking about, um, and he talks about the same thing. I, I brought it up to him, and, and he agreed that, uh, in fact, the recent area, he sent a picture, he found some Bigfoot scat. He wasn't sure what it was at first, but, you know, it's pretty obvious in the, in the photographs. Um, right, right. But, yeah, you know, up in that area, and, and I've, you know, I've seen bears in other areas, and they're not spooky like that. That area, they're extremely spooky. Um they they see a man. They uh, you want to see how fast a black bear can run. You'll you'll know you'll never outrun one when you see one. You know moves like they do, um, and in that area they always run like that. They're they're extremely fearful. So I'm not sure why, other than the fact that these creatures inhabit that area. Well, yeah, and typically when you see them in those areas, you see a rump and zip, and it's gone. Oh yeah, yeah. We uh, I had my brother-in-law up there, you know, a number of years ago, and and he'd never seen a black bear in the wild. And I said, "Well, you're you'll see one here because I see one at least one every time I come up here." And uh, we were driving kind of slow, looking at this area where there had been a lot of Bigfoot activity, and um, you know, just kind of looking the sides of the road for tracks, thing, any kind of sign. And we bend, come around the bend of this this curve, and, and here's this big. I mean, it was a big black bear. And at first it was just moving, kind of just walking along the side of the road. Then it saw us, and boy, it took off like a shot down this slope to our right. And it was a fairly steep slope, and it run like a son of a gun down there. And uh, we walked over to the edge of the, the slope uh, where it took off so we could see if we could see it again. And it stopped on this small knoll going down the slope, and it was on high alert. Its ears were up, and it was looking, and as soon as it saw us again, it was gone like a shot into the timber you know that it's interesting because that area that you and i were in about a month and a half ago i i was there a year earlier and just slowly driving along and probably about a 350 maybe a 400 pound pretty good sized black bear uh it was just sort of zipping across the road and so i i wondered because it was in the exact area where these creatures were uh, if it wasn't being pursued because it was in a hurry it was scooting yeah it's hard telling i mean you know if they're running like that they could be being chased it's hard telling you know unless you have a, a yeah, perspective I, well what 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 hunts a 350 pound black bear nothing i mean mountain lions will leave them alone yeah they're not bears not going to be afraid of a mountain lion no. Not in most cases, anyway. I mean, unless they're after their cubs or something. But yeah, then then the tables are turned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, so yeah, very interesting. I just I wanted to kind of bring up that whole bear thing because you've talked about it, and where they're really really skittish. So there's a reason. It, for it, it just seems out of place, and, and I can understand one or two times, but all the time they're always like that in that particular spot of course again it's just it's that i get that time of year when i talked about them being in an area during a certain time of year that's the time of year when they're in that area usually around august 
and uh, and you know the area's got a history of, of Bigfoot behavior there. So um, you know, you, you, without direct evidence, you can only guess. But um, I think you can have a pretty good guess about what may be going oh, on. Oh, absolutely. And what is it? I mean, dogs have a fear of these things. All dogs do. I've yet to hear of somebody who said, yeah, I've got a dog that'll go hunt a Bigfoot. Well, well, okay, there's a good point to bring up. The recording we just got from, from our guy in Arizona where the he's finding hundreds of footprints all the time in that one river. Um, yeah. He sent, he got a recording. It's, it's a short piece, but it's a very strange recording. And you played it for dogs, and so did our previous guest on, on this episode, Fred. And Fred's got some pit bulls, and he said the dogs immediately ran upstairs and ran under the bed, and he had a hard time getting them out from under the bed. It scared them. Yes. And I have a situation where sometimes some dogs are quite annoying. They, they bark way too much, and I played that. And silence. They just got real quiet. And by the way, I don't have dogs, but I, I got a couple cats, and their ears perked right up. Now, how is it? I know that neither one of these, you know, neither the dogs nor the cats have ever encountered one of these things. So it begs the question, what is it about Bigfoot's vocalization that freaks them out? Instinct. Don't know. Instinct. <clears throat> yeah. Right? That's well, it. we can talk about owl sounds. <laughs> it was a group decision yeah we're gonna we're gonna leave now well that was based on some experience too so yeah it was yeah well we have just a couple of minutes left do you have any more questions tom or i think i'm good with uh we have some excellent questions that we got from our listeners so folks keep those coming in we love them and they keep the topic alive and fresh so thank you very much Absolutely. So let's see. Do you have anything you want to uh, mention before we wrap up this segment? Yes. Funny you mentioned that. Yes. I want to I want to do a shout out to our friend uh, Fred in Okinawa and his classroom. And I want to do a shout out again to Annie in Australia and Pip. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, and if anybody if you really enjoy this show, it really helps us to do a thumbs up subscribe and you can become a patreon the link is in the description and and check out lynn smith's channel too uh, she's really really worth checking out if you haven't heard her stuff yes absolutely i think lynn smith is i can count on one hand not using my thumb how many channels i listen to not many lynn is one of them dixie cryptids another one that's right. fun to listen to and uh I like Thinker Thunker as well. The guy comes off as very... He's good. Uh, he's good. Yes, he is. He's very good. Very logical. And um, so those are... That's probably about it. Yeah, Lynn, Lynn's been doing some readings from my books recently. And she's done a super job. So, um, And I'm also currently working on... I actually have four new book ideas that I'm, I'm working on actively. So uh, hopefully in the next... This year sometime I'll put a, one or two more books out. Uh, all my stuff is all available on Amazon if anybody's interested. So having said those things, we'll wrap this segment up and stay tuned for the next one, folks.
Welcome. This collection of five stories is being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Sasquatch are here, says Outdoorsman. By Bernice Tick, Prince George Citizen Staff, August 15th, 2005. A Prince George man whose greatest passion has been hunting for big game admits he is hooked on proving the existence of Sasquatch. Leo Selzer, who has spent 41 years hunting in the bush around Prince George in Canada, is convinced the elusive creatures are around, and he spends as much time as he can in the bush area where he believes they live. He says he's had one pretty clear sighting, and several occasions when he's convinced he was communicating with his furry friends. In the mid-1980s, when Selzer was moose hunting in Greg Creek area west of the city, he did his loud moose calls that bring in the bulls during rutting season. After a few calls, I heard a response, like someone banging on a tree about a kilometer away. I would call, then right away, bang, bang. And a small black bear appeared, wandering towards the banging sounds. The bear stopped and stood up on its hind legs, looking towards a tall fir tree. And then, all of a sudden, it hightailed it in the opposite direction toward me, veered off, and went down over the ridge. It was then that Selzer saw a tall, dark-colored creature step out from the cover of the fir tree into the open, and then quickly stepped behind the tree and was gone, said Selzer, noting that logged-off areas have little human activity. In 2000, Selzer was again hunting at Greg Creek when, about 400 meters, he spotted what he first thought was a large bear standing on its hind legs watching the hunters. It was standing next to a large, broken-off fir tree and was about the same dark color, maybe grayish around its shoulders and on its chest. Thinking it could be a grizzly, I kept a close eye on it, watching it shift its weight from one leg to the other a couple of times for about a half an hour. All of a sudden, it was gone. But later... I realized a bear would never stand on its hind legs for that long without getting down and back up again, said Selzer. After studying that area closely, he has concluded the creatures leave landmarks and directional signs by piling trees into X marks behind closely knit trees and bending and shaping spindly trees into arches and shaped pointers carefully threaded through willow tops. He believes Sasquatch eat bark from the trees like aspens and has seen markings showing large fingernails and teeth were used to remove the bark. He has also seen large footprints, but hasn't been fortunate to be able to photograph them fresh or complete. One footprint going up a grade was pretty clear, about 13 to 14 inches long, 8 inches wide at the heel and about six inches wide at the top of the ball of the foot. There were indications of possible toe impressions about one to three inches beyond the ball of the foot. In 1994, on the Hoodoo Lakes Road, he could hear three individual voices give out a holler or two, which was responded to by jabbering type of language. 
I thought it must be some drunken people back there on a bush road or something, but I later found out there is no road or clearing in that area. In mid-June, Selzer came across an area in the Greg Creek, about 300 to 400 yards long, containing a series of blinds and shelters and teepee-like frameworks he believes were built by a Sasquatch. The blinds were waist-to-shoulder height with logs and trees pushed together to form a lean-to-like structure. The frameworks, up to 50 feet high, are made with long, spindly trees intricately intertwined to form a structure, said Silzer. Brian Vike in Houston, who reports on unidentified flying objects and such matters, has received reports from residents about Sasquatch sightings in the Buck Flats area. Two Houston women driving up Buck Flats Road were startled recently when a large animal walked upright across the road in front of their vehicle. The animal, described much like a Sasquatch, made long strides into the forest, but did not turn around to look back at the women. He said a camping party in Silverhorn Lake reported hearing chilling screams in the night coming from around the lake, which cannot be associated with the known animals in the region. One other sighting was reported on the Maurice River Road when two people fishing witnessed a large two-legged animal on the opposite bank of a river walk slowly into the forest and disappear, said Vike. American William Dranginus said he saw a Bigfoot once, hairy, seven feet tall, and sprinting through the woods of Virginia. The twelve-second sighting changed the life of Dranginus, who outfitted a 24-foot mobile veterinary clinic as a Bigfoot primate research lab. Equipped with scopes, radios, and a night sight camera that can detect an animal in the dark at 800 yards away, he heads out at least two weekends a month but still no second sighting for Dranginus, who would like to push legislation to protect the creatures. Do not shoot it, said Selzer. They mean no harm, but they are curious and incredibly intelligent beings. Selzer's latest reported sighting on July 20th came from a visiting couple from Saskatoon. They told Selzer that, while driving Highway 16 east at about 8 p.m. near Tabor Mountain, they saw what they first thought was a large man crossing the highway. Describing the creature was about seven and a half feet tall, covered with hair, thick-barreled shoulders, and narrow waist, they said it crossed the road about 100 yards ahead of them in about three steps. And that's the end of story number one. Story number two. Old Bigfoot in Idaho adds color to legend. By Betty Allen for the Humboldt Times, 1959. Another article by Betty Allen. This one is an interesting story in several ways and has naturally been received with whoops of joy by the skeptics. The story of Bigfoot and John Wheeler is from the Humboldt Times, dated January 3rd, 1959, and reads, Mrs. Alvin Bortles of Boise, Idaho, discussed an account of a Bigfoot who lived prior to 1868 in the wilderness of Idaho. The mother of Kenneth Bortles, vice principal of the Hoopa Valley High School, 
Mrs. Bortles said that mysterious tracks of a tremendous size and human shape stirred the residents of Idaho in the early days. Just as with Bigfoot tracks of Northern California's Bluff Creek area, some believed they were genuine, others saw them as a clever hoax. Bigfoot lived in the remote wilderness of Reynolds Canyon, now known as Reynolds Creek. A thousand dollars was offered for him, dead or alive. Here the likeness to the local Bigfoot ended, for the giant monster, as he was called in Idaho, was a killer. The full extent of the depredations of Bigfoot were never known, nor the many robberies and murders attributed to him, which he probably did not commit. The sometimes wanton killings that were the work of almost superhuman strength, both with stock and humans, brought about his downfall. A thousand dollars was offered for Bigfoot, dead or alive. John Wheeler, a former army man, set out to collect the reward. In the year 1868, he came upon Bigfoot and shot him sixteen times. Both legs and one arm were broken before he fell to the ground, and as he lay there, Bigfoot asked for a drink of water, and because of his great fear, Wheeler shot him, breaking his other arm before giving the drink to the creature. Before he died, he told Wheeler that his real name was Star Wilkerson, and he had been born in the Cherokee nation of a white father. His mother was part Cherokee and part Negro. Even as a very small boy, everyone had called him Bigfoot and made fun of him. At age 19, the white girl he loved jilted him for another. Gathering a small band of men about him, he killed him at the time for the sheer love of the killing. Later, Wilkerson killed the girl that he loved, too. The foot length of this great giant of a man was seventeen and a half inches and eighteen inches around the ball of the foot. His height was six feet nine inches, with a chest measurement of fifty-nine inches, and his weight was estimated at three hundred pounds. He was all bone and sinew, no surplus flesh, he was known to have traveled as far as 60 or 75 miles in a 24-hour period. The story of Bigfoot and John Wheeler is detailed further in Ron Marlowe's Indian Tales of Bigfoot, which was first printed in the Independent Enterprise newspaper, Payette, Idaho, Wednesday, March 21st, 2001, http colon forward slash forward slash payettecounty.info forward slash marlow forward slash bigfoot dot html Adelaide Hawes gives an account of Star Wilkerson or Bigfoot in her book The Valley of the Tall Grass written in 1950 Another brutal story from Idaho was the one told by President Teddy Roosevelt The Bauman Story this is the end of story number two. Story number three. Screams and footprints found in Talladega National Forest, Cleburne County, Alabama. 1994. About 14 years ago, my wife and I were at a lake in the middle of the Talladega National Forest in Alabama. 
the lake with Sweetwater Lake. From I-20, you get off at the Heflin exit and go through Heflin and get on Highway 78. You will see signs directing you to Pine Glen, a camping area. The Coleman Lake soon after this point. The roads are dirt roads, but follow the signs to Pine Glen, and about three miles up the road on the left you will see a sign for Sweetwater Lake. This road will go down about half a mile to the lake. It was September in 1994. We were fishing in a small boat at the end of a slough early in the morning. We were the only ones on the lake. I think it was a Wednesday, and, well, we were all alone. We heard something scream. It started out as a howl and turned into a long, high-pitched scream, and it was so loud it echoed through the mountains. It made the hair on the back of our neck stand up. But that is not all. About a year before that, my stepfather and I were hiking around the same lake. We liked to fish at a spillway on the back side of the lake, and about a half a mile into the hike we crossed a fire break about twenty feet wide. Now, keep in mind that we are a pretty good way back in the woods. We have crossed rocks, thorns, briars, and all kinds of rough road. And right there across the dried mud in the fire break is a set of footprints dried into the mud. They were not huge. They were about the size of a full-grown man, but they did look human. And I just couldn't understand why a man would be this far back in the woods without shoes on. And over the years, there is one thing I have thought about. A Bigfoot would have to grow up, so maybe it was a young Bigfoot. I once worked with a man in Alabama that afterwards when we became friends, and he told me and his whole family were picking huckleberries at Sweetwater Lake. The huckleberries grow wild all over the area. He and his wife and two children were picking away when they all heard something in the trees. They all turned around to see a hairy man standing there. He said it was a little taller than a man, and as soon as it saw them, it ran off into the woods. Well, it scared them so bad that they left. This is the end of story number three. Story number four. The White Mountain Apache Nation of Eastern Arizona. Apaches go public with Bigfoot sightings. They cannot be ignored any longer. By Scott Davis. Tucson, Arizona, September 2, 2006. Footprints in the mud. Tufts of hair on a fence. Ear-piercing screeches in the night. These are only fragments of the stories now coming from the White Mountains in eastern Arizona. For years, the White Mountain Apache Nation has kept the secret within tribal boundaries. We're not prone to easily talk to outsiders, said spokeswoman Colette Altaha. But there have been more sightings than ever before. It cannot be ignored any longer. It is a creature the world knows as Bigfoot. No one's had a negative encounter with it, said Marjorie Grimes, who lives in Whitewater, the primary town on the reservation. Grimes is one of many who claim to have seen the creature over the last 25 years. Her first sighting was in 1982, 
Her most recent was in the summer of 2004, driving home from the town of Sibiku. She becomes more animated as the memory comes forth. It was all black, and it was tall. The way it walked, it was taking big strides. I put on the brakes and raced back and looked between the two trees where it was, and it was gone. Grime's son, Francis, has a story. Their neighbor, Cecil Hendricks, has a story. Even police officers have had strange encounters. Officer Catherine Montoya has seen it twice. On a recent Monday night, dozens of people called into the tribe's radio station, KNNB, to talk about what they'd seen. Others came in person. The newsroom was there. So was Tom Biscardi and a crew from Searching for Bigfoot, Inc., the California-based team, has crisscrossed the country pursuing reports of the mythic animal. New York, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Texas, and Arizona have been hot spots this year. Biscardi said the Apache land is an untapped resource for investigators. There are way too many reports coming out of there of seeing the creature. My God, people better start listening to and coming to this thing because it's happening. His ultimate goal is to capture a Bigfoot creature, study it for 90 days, and return it to the wild. Two nights in a row, Biscardi and crew strapped motion-activated cameras with night-vision lenses onto trees in the nearby woods. They set up listening devices and made noises which he claims lure the creatures into view. All their efforts yielded only one result. No mystery beast. No mystery screams. Instead, there is relief. Colette Altaha said the people on the reservation are beginning to support the decision to go public because of people doubting them before they never came forward. But now, with the help of Tom Biscardi and his team, they've come out here and our people are beginning to open up. Indeed, the decision to let 3TV report this story was a controversial one. On the radio program, one Apache caller said tribal elders were uncomfortable letting the legend be known. Still, Altaha believes it is the right thing to do. I've heard stories from a while back about sightings. I'm not easily persuaded, but with so many of the people coming forward and telling us their stories, there might be something out there that actually exists. Tribal Police Lieutenant Ray Burnett puts it in terms of public safety. A couple of times they've seen this creature looking through the windows. They're scared when they call. As in all alleged sightings of a Bigfoot creature, tangible evidence is scarce. The Patterson film from 1967 is the most often seen video. It shows a tall, hairy figure striding through the woods of the Pacific Northwest. For nearly 40 years, this film's authenticity has been debated. It has never been discredited. In the White Mountains last year, investigators found footprints, several tufts of hair and other material at the scene of a sighting. Tribal police made plaster casts from the prints and sent hair and plant samples to the Department of Public Safety for analysis in its state-of-the-art crime lab. Test results 
showed the hare was not human, but animal in origin. Further testing to determine what kind of animal was not done. The Arizona Game and Fish Department does not investigate Bigfoot sightings. Neither does the State Veterinarian's Office, a division of Arizona Department of Health Services. Perhaps the only organizations that take such reports seriously are Bigfoot hunters such as Viscardi or the Bigfoot Field Research Organization. The field is not well organized and often manned by amateurs with little to no scientific background. Biscardi himself has come under fire in the past for promoting an alleged find that later turned out to be a hoax. He is more careful these days and promises a huge revelation yet to come. It will be something even more fantastic than the hundreds of reports of the Apache Bigfoot. Back on the reservation, Lieutenant Burnett wants outsiders to realize that the department takes these calls seriously, and so should you. The calls we're getting from people, they weren't hallucinating. They weren't drunks. They weren't people that we know can make hoax calls. They're from real citizens of the Fort Apache Indian Reservation. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Nearest to Prescott, Yavapai County, Arizona, November 2007. Scream terrifies ranchers. Hello, I'm writing to your website because of some strange goings-on about the place I own out here in Prescott, Yavapai County, Arizona. We have the remnants of what used to be a working ranch from years ago. Some livestock left from those days. A few horses, a few Brahma, a couple of goats out there, and a longhorn I won in a bar fight in Mexico. Down in Limestone County, Texas, and, well, recently we think we have a Bigfoot around. We used to winter horses for people around these parts, who were snowbirds, but no more because of the mystery disappearances that happen here. In fact, lots of mysterious things like that happen around the place, especially as fall nears and the weather cools, like September, October, November. Nothing happens in summer out here. One notable incident was the disappearance of one of my best dogs, part pit bull, shepherd mix. He weren't afraid of anything and was a great watchdog for the lower pasture. He guarded the grazing stock and two sheep we used to have, and the goats from local mountain lions and bobcats. Now you may say the dog wandered off, but he was ten years old and never left sight of the main house. He was a devoted dog. Some have said a bear came in from the forest at night and took him, but my middle son found him exactly fourteen feet up in the crotch of a pinion tree, with his neck snapped, no teeth marks found, no bear claw marks, no mountain lion tears, just a broken neck and tossed up into that tree, or if not tossed, someone must have put the dog's body up in that pinion, which my son had trouble reaching. We all tried to explain that one. Now on to the sheep. 
I bartered with a half-breed for a ram and you, and had them down in the grazing pasture along with the stock, horses, goats, and such. We only had them a short while, and they disappeared. For a while we thought the previous owner snuck back here, loaded up the two, and carried them off, but my wife ran into the fellow in the hardware store in town and talked to him about the disappearance. He came home that day with my wife, and together we went out looking for sign. We found nothing that day, and I don't believe he had anything to do with the sheep disappearance. He told me a far-out story that got me to thinking, though, which is why I looked up Bigfoot on the Internet. Anyway, he told me of a place up in Sierra Prieta, Ponderosa Forest, where this uh, Yavapai Indian woman ran her small flock of sheep in the company of young cousin, a blue merle coolie and a border collie, I think, that kept her flock together at night, fending off attacks by mountain lions and bobcats, sometimes wolverines. Well, this one season the woman and her cousin were bringing the flock down off a mountain grazing. It was late October, and snows were expected. She said she was not feeling well, and laid down in a grassy meadow to rest, but woke up when she heard the sheep bleating, her cousin yelling, and the dogs loudly were onto something. Well, the woman sheepherder said that she got to her feet in time to see her two dogs biting at the heels of a big, hairy man. So Yoko, as he ambled off, escaping with a big U under his arm, the hairy man tried to fend off the biting dogs, kicked the one coolie dog all to hell. Well, this might be what befell my dog. She called off the dogs and watched the hairy man disappear into the pine trees with its prize. He explained the hairy man to her was what we called Bigfoot or Sasquatch. She only told the story once to an elder, and she won't speak of it any more. But he mentioned they came down from the north in winter. Hearing the sheep herder's story, putting two and two together, well, my sons, the half-breed, and I pretty much decided that we must have a rogue Bigfoot living somewhere near the property. I don't mind that so much, and we don't mind sharing some of the fruit off our trees with them, but stealing a man's stock is another thing. I don't expect to put up with that. After reading up on your website, my boys and I, along with the other dogs, packed a rifle in the scabbard and rode out recently of a morning during Thanksgiving week and covered the whole western stretch of the property line looking for sign. You would laugh. We looked like a posse with a B-Western movie. Well, we worked the edge of the tree line for about two hours looking for a trail. We found one that led deep into the forest, a section none of us had ridden before. We worked the horses through there into and around thick brush. Soon we came to a stream and stopped to gather our bearings and water the horses. Dismounting, I thought I heard someone cough. I asked, and nobody heard it but me. My horse jerked up, snorted, and became uneasy. Sensing something none of us could see, the other mounts followed, 
All of us were focusing on keeping the horses under control as they danced about, bucking, kicking, and snorting. My sons thought mountain lion. I wasn't sure. We stood together there by the stream, listening, calming the horses, when the dogs started looking towards this thicket of tangled brush. Then the barking started in earnest, and they took off. Still, we couldn't see anything, but by now we all expected the dogs to tree a mountain lion. We couldn't follow. The brush was too thick, but the dog noise seemed to end about twenty yards into the thick brush and brambles. We kept calling and calling, and finally the dogs returned, and then took off again. Pretty soon the dogs returned, with tongues hanging out, breathing heavy. We leashed the dogs up and took them and led the horses back down to the stream. The dogs settled down some, but the horses didn't, and as we were making an effort to saddle up again, that is when it happened. There came this howl that lengthened into a scream that at first sounded like a Brahma fart, low guttural and drug out, ending up into a high-pitched drone like a woman screaming bloody murder. My body reacted with a chill and goosebumps, mainly because the scream was coming from very close, somewhere in that thicket of brambles where the dogs had been. The scream was long and kind of dragged out, the kind of noise that gets your attention real fast. The half-breed yelled, So Coco! So Yoko! Bigfoot, as he pulled the rifle out of the scabbard, by now, the horses were almost impossible to control. Then it got quiet. Not a sound. No birds, no crickets, no nothing. Everything was very still except for the horses. The dogs were by now cowering between my legs and their ears pricked towards the thicket. Then in the distance we heard another scream. It must have come from across the next valley. Now we're figuring there's a fixing to be two of these Bigfoot. I felt fear for the first time. The dogs started whining. My grown boys hurried and saddled up. We followed and took off down the trail, headed at a full gallop all the way home a good hour later. Ain't never heard nothing like that vocalization before, and I've heard plenty coyote, plenty wolves, elk's bugle, but never nothing like that before, and uh, it weren't no mountain lion scream. It was four times as powerful. If that was a warning from Bigfoot, <laughs> we got the message. This is the end of the five stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.